Hey, yo, what's good? What's good? What's good? Welcome to Reflections of a DJ The Road Podcast presented by DJ City and Beat Source. I am one of your hosts, DJ Crooked. We got DJ Never here. Yo, 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 what up? We got Jamie the Great. Yeah. We got a special guest host, Mr. Eddie McDonald from Mac Agency. What's good, Eddie? What's good? Good to be back. Just coming back from his travels from uh, Coachella. Yes. (laughs) With uh, DJ Pee Wee Anderson (laughs) Pack. Wee Man. Yeah. Yeah, it was fun. I've been wanting this DJ on since we started the podcast. When I first moved out to Vegas, I you know I, I first saw this man spinning at Foundation Room with Eddie, and they were doing they were playing uh, I think it was 2006, and you guys were playing nothing but funk soul disco classics. It was amazing. You guys were playing back to back. You guys were going. Um, it's just impeccable mixing. Some of the best selection I've heard. I was hearing like extended mixes of of records I've never heard before. And, uh, you know, I would, you guys would go back to back and every time, you, uh, you know, this DJ would take a break, I, I'd be like chewing his ear off. So I'm like, yo, tell me more about the seventies. Tell me more about what, what was going on in New York and what, what you were doing. And, um, you know, he's finally here and we get to talk to him. He was in a VH1 documentary when disco ruled the world. You know, he's inducted into New York legends of vinyl DJ and artist hall of fame. I mean, we're talking like 50 years, you know, decades and decades of experience from working club DJ. He's, he's had record pools. He's worked for radio stations, labels. He's done everything. And I'm so glad to have him here. He's the epitome of the working club DJ to me. And I'm really honored to have you here. Um, he's experienced some of the greatest music and nightlife in history. And, uh, you know, we're very, very, very proud to welcome Mr. Captain Disco himself, <laughs> Charlie Anzalone. What's good, Charlie? Hey. Thank you. Great to yeah. be here. I love Quickly, all you guys. This is the longest introduction you ever did. Yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> was nice, I didn't think you. Really I thought you would keep going. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah from Breaking Bad. Yeah, right. yeah it, it was like the Lord of the Rings intro. <laughs> <for me>. yeah. <laughs> I got to honor my man Charlie. Charlie was good. Yeah. I need to get the bell. Yeah, <laughs> the Breaking Bad. <laughs> what was the name? Uh, Hector, Hector Salamanca. Salamanca. <laughs> you so you. You look look exactly, almost exactly like Hector Salamanca, right? That's why there's so many parodies on the internet with me. They got our pictures side side by side. Yeah. That's crazy. He's had people come up to him and ask him, like, like I don't know if it was an autograph situation, but oh, they, asking they, you if that's you. Yeah, they point oh. at me. Yeah. It's like, what are you pointing at? But, you, but you've done, so like outside of DJing, you're like a professional referee for, for boxing and MMA, right? Well, when I was, I was an inspector. Inspector. Uh, uh, and what the inspectors do is like, we watch them wrap the hands and all that. We got to sign off the wraps. We mm-hmm. watch them in the corner, make sure they don't do any shit illegal and all that. And, we're like the ring cops. <laughs> yeah. So how long were you doing that for? I did that for 16 years. And before that, I was managing MMA fighters since UFC 1. Wow. By the way, UFC 273 was the other week. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Just so you know. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. So on top of DJing, you were an inspector and you've been working with UFC and boxing yeah. for 16 years. I plus. worked a lot of big world championship boxing fights, all the big UFC fights. But, but that's where everyone would say you're the Hector Salamanca yeah. of boxing. <laughs> yeah. The, <laughs> the look. I give him the look. <laughs> Wait. Weren't you, Eddie, weren't you guys going to do like a Breaking Bad Halloween? Halloween. I think we were, yeah, right? Yeah, the yeah, wheelchair. Yeah. He was going to get right. the wheelchair. Push him around and yeah. stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was going to be Heisenberg. Gonna get the, wait, who are you going to be Heisenberg? I yeah, I mean, that's the closest thing I can get. The bald head. Oh 
<laughs> or Breaking Bad going to Six Flags, either or. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> so when I first moved to Vegas and I saw you and Eddie DJing, you guys were using all vinyl back then oh, in Foundation Room. Yeah, that yeah. was the uh, old school retro room. The yeah. old school yeah. retro room, right? Yeah, it was called Godspeed. Yeah, uh, it was originally, I believe, started by Sean Christie, actually, mm-hmm. when he was still working at House of Blues before Light Group started, um, which meant Andy Massey was also involved. But I think it was, um, it was Sean and I think Mike Fuller kind of collabed wow. on it. Uh, and then all the heavyweights. Sean, yeah. When Sean left for light group, uh, he, yeah. he kind of gave it, passed it along to uh, Mike Fuller who Fuller. kept it going. And it was basically, you know, Mike Fuller would be in the main room playing like deep house and Justin Hoffman would be in the room called Shangri-La all the way in the back playing hip hop and R and B and stuff like that. And then, and then uh, Charlie and I would be in the, in the uh, dining room, the restaurant area playing. We all just called it like the ret- like retro dance. It was, you know, disco funk, it was um, freestyle, you know, um, eighties pop. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was amazing. It was a lot fun. of fun. It was so wow. much fun. Was it, was Eddie pretty much one of the first DJs you connected with when you came to Vegas? Well, I walked into, Caramel, and I met Manny Ramos. He goes, "Hey, you gotta meet DJ Eddie. He's playing across the hall at uh, was it uh, the big club at? Ooh, it was light, light, but I, I, I did we meet? I thought we met at Caramel. Oh yeah, yeah, See, we I did thought we met at Caramel. Yeah. yeah, I think we met yeah. at Caramel. Yeah. Well, it, Manny told me I had to meet you. Oh yeah, and yeah. that's when I met you, Caramel. And then uh, shout out to Manny, help you well, man. So you guys linked up at Caramel, right? Uh, he's my best first best DJ, but I I, I got to meet the DJs here in Las Vegas. Cause yeah, but you know I like, the DJs. I, I lost your info. I remember you wrote your number down or something, and then uh, and I'm sure we'll get to this anyway, so I'm not going to jump ahead too much. But then I saw uh, when Disco ruled the world. And I'm like, holy shit, I know that guy. <laughs> I was like, it was like Casey, and then it was like, uh, you know, Mer- Tom Moulton, Mer- and then you Griffin see his mug, and I was like, oh shit. And I was like, I got to reach out to him, and I couldn't find his his contact that he left me. And we wound up luckily reconnecting not too long after that. Yeah. So you're you're from originally from Buffalo, New York. Buffalo, New York. Buffalo, New York. Mm-hmm. And your story that you started DJing in like 1973, 74? Yeah, I started sitting in with, I, 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 was, I was like a, DJ Groupie. I used to go to this place called Brunner's. It was oldies night on Wednesday night, and it was packed. And all they played was like 50s and 60s doo-wop and soul and pop. And I used to help the DJ carry his records and his little boxes of 45s, you know. And I'd hang out next to the booth, and uh, I'd be drinking Rolling Rock all night. Like four <laughs> splits of Rolling Rock for a dollar. And Jesus. Uh, oh, that was the big, big thing back then. So um, he asked me... He, the DJ, uh, Tommy Sherry, goes, man, I got to go to the bathroom and get some beers. You want to play some records? I was like, sure. <laughs> so I'll never forget. It was the first. That's when I go, give me something to play. It was Help Me Rounded by the Beach Boys. But back then, all I had was one little old BSA home term table and a microphone. So I had to say something between the record while you put the 45 on, put the needle on it. Okay, so th- this is before there was two turntables. Uh, yeah, the, well, this particular club only had only had one turntable. Oh, it was wow. a bar, really. And uh, I put it on. I, so what would you say between songs? Well, I was going to, but I choked when I turned the mic on. I, I was like, uh, oh, shit, I put the needle on the record. Just. <laughs> But typically, yeah. you would just approach it like a radio show almost? Yeah, yeah. That's what wow. most DJs did back then. Really? Before there was beat mixing, you know, and uh, in Buffalo Are you serious? Anyway. That's what DJs used to do? They just kind of treated it like radio? Yeah, kinda? they just put one record on after another. They talk over the mic. Because some of the early guys who played in bars were 
radio DJs until they were like guys who were just for the hobby and for the hobby. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, so basically they introduced the record. They'll put the record. Yeah. Introduce the record or we're about to play so-and-so. Yeah. Here's a so-and-so by so-and-so, blah, 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 blah. But people would be dancing and then they have to sort of stop and wait and catch up to the record. Cause they, they didn't beat mix. They just put one after another. Yeah. Jesus. And, uh, yeah, it was crude, and there were just 45s, no 12-inch records at the time, or album cuts, and and then uh, I got my first resident DJ job after sitting with some other guys in the early discos. The first discos opened up like 1971, 72, was Uncle Sam's, who was, which was run by the Lyons brothers, Pat Lyons, who... John Lyons' older brother. Wow. Really? Yeah. Oh, shit. John yeah. Lyons... The st- John Lyons wasn't old enough to work at a bar. They had him washing glasses in the back at Uncle Sam's. <laughs> Damn. Man, Pat Lyons, um, he was a manager slash DJ. And uh, back then, that's where they introduced a live drummer playing along to the records. Oh, shit. Yeah, that's in 1971-72. And then Pat Lyons moved to Boston and became the nightclub god, you know. So yeah. we, so what we, we, we researched you a little bit. What we read was that you were with a friend that was bartending, right, at Melanie's? Yeah. And the sound guy was taking a break. I guess the DJ was taking a break. Uh-huh. And you played a couple of records, but then the owner heard you, and then he offered you like a gig, right? Yeah. Well, what happened was a uh, my friend Greg Kirsch. He built the sound system. He goes, "Want to play some records?" I was like, "Oh hell yeah! Oh, they had two turntables. Wow, you know." And he said, "But you know, if you get a chance, here's the thing: some of the beer specials and stuff and all that announced it. So man, I got on the mic. I was like, fucking Marie the K, you know." I was like, you know, uh, Melanie's, you know, we got the drink special, blah, 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 blah. And the owner came up to me. He goes, are you my DJ? I said, no. He goes, you want a job? Sure. <laughs> Just like that. Jesus. <laughs> yeah. I got $35 a night, plus all my free drinks and all the chicks I could bang. <laughs> <laughs> what else would a 23-year-old kid want to do for a living? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you was, you was DJing. You didn't have a mitzvah. You just had the two turntables, right? Yeah, we just had just like a, a crude mixer to go from one record to the other. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no beat. But it was like, yeah, it wasn't no matching. Yeah. Oh, and we played blender. rock. We played rock and pop and everything. You know, that's when the bump came out, you know. So I would play songs that, People would be doing the bump. There's this one chick. She's a real heavy chick. We used to call her Moby May. She was real big. And she, used to, and she used to, she used to, she used to bump all the. She used to dance with all the like little guys, and she'd be bumping her big ass and knocking them over and everything. <laughs> Susie May. We used to call her Moby May. Yeah, Moby <laughs> May. <laughs> That's a true story. Wait, so 35 was that a lot at that time? What year was it? Like well, this is 1974, 1975. But you got to figure, you know, and, and after that, I started making like $50 a night. $50. But a brand new car was $3,000. Buy yourself a new and, Buick uh, Cutlass in 1975 for three grand. I think I think gas was like 50 cents. Yeah, tw- no, 29.9, yeah. 30 cents a gallon. Yeah. But, you know, I, and once I got to make $100 a night back in the late 70s, uh, it was like, uh, a new car would be thirty five hundred four grand. So really? So you you DJ forty nights for hundred bucks a night. You went and bought a new car cash. How many I'll, how many nights a week was you working? I work four nights a week usually. Wow. Oh, four times. Jesus, Damn. in a month you'll have half of the car. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was like you know, and then in the eighties, of course, it, things went up. We started robbing club owners, and they yeah. hated it. But you know, <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, what? I said we started robbing club owners asking for more money because like, back then yeah. it's not like it is now where I can say hey Crooked 
I got to take my girl to a wedding. You sit in for me. Back then, you couldn't do it. There were no DJs. Yeah, you know, it was yeah. a special. You know, nobody was a DJ. You guys were a rare breed. We are a rare breed. That's why club owners hated us. <laughs> yeah. Explain that a little bit. Uh, we were the only. The DJ was the only job in a guy's nightclub, or the owner's nightclub, that he couldn't do. Yeah, he could tend bar, he could cook food, he could work the door, he could do anything, but he couldn't DJ, and they hated that. <laughs> so they needed us. <laughs> You think that's always been the the stigma, even till now? Yeah, I Club bet owners. it is. It's like, man, why are we paying these guys so fucking much money? I heard there was, oh, and the bartenders hated it too. The bartenders, we were making more money than the bartenders. I remember, I heard there was a rumor. You could bleep this out. Huh. So they reopened, and they said well, we don't want to highlight the DJ anymore because they were they were done with the inflated egos. They yeah. were done with like the the. the and I was just wondering, what was that about? Anyway? I don't, yeah, I mean, I, well, it was, it was going to be its own thing in the beginning, almost a little nod to Studio 54 kind of decadence and, and some old school vibes in the main room. And right. he was really involved in that opening a lot. He was in, he was in a lot. I never played the main room. I was thankfully tucked away in the vinyl parlor, which was pretty sick. Yeah. Um, which was like one of the first vinyl parlors that started getting yeah. introduced. Yeah, right? that was, yeah. I'll never forget it. Yeah, Sean, <clears throat> I was DJing at Alibi at Aria and Sean Christie came in and um, that was our reconnecting. You know, he came up the ramp, walked by the DJ booth, gave me a pound. He's like, we need to talk this week. He's like, I'm going to do an all vinyl room at the new... Um, no. I said, all right. And then like, we haven't kind of stopped working together since then, you know, nice. there's a little bit of a break between light group and, and then, you know, the intentions were good to keep that vibe, you know, blink your eyes a couple of times and fucking marshmallows in the DJ booth. So, <laughs> <laughs> so wait, when you, when you were DJing at this time, what was the music that you were playing? Cause me and never were talking and it was like before disco, there was like funk, right? Yeah. It was, it was all like the, 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 the soul record, Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, uh, mm -hmm. the BT Express, um, just all, all the old funk and soul stuff, Temptations, Glass House, and the Commodores, and stuff like that. And, and then it started to weave in. And, and a lot, but the, the first big one in 1974, that was George McRae, Rock Your Baby, which mm. set the bar for modern disco music. And, and clubs forced everybody around the world to play it on radio. It was a monster record on TK Records. That's what kicked the label TK Records off for, with KC and the Sunshine Band mm -hmm. and stuff. Never, you were, you were saying the stigma on funk music at that time, right? Oh, no, I was saying, like, um, I feel like the um, a lot of the clubs back in the days, they didn't want to play, they didn't want the DJs to play funk and R&B because it would bring, like, a black crowd. Yeah. Is that true? No, that's absolutely true. Wow. But I was lucky to work in clubs where it didn't make any difference because, every you know, at, when Vietnam War was over in the 70s, people needed something to feel good about, and people were just miserable for a fucking decade with that war mm. and disco was like the medicine you know and it was a place where people gay straight black white latino asian everybody could come and have a good time and forget about all this shit from a few years before it was time to move on and uh the the but but you had club owners i worked for some that were <laughs> a funny story that i was working at a place called a club 747 and the place was just rocking. It was the inside of a 747 jumbo jet. Oh shit! Oh, oh yeah, it's it's well documented club, and um, <laughs> the the general manager of the hotel that the club was in, the Playboy Club was next door. He goes, you know, you play something else and take some of the black music off. Oh, 
fuck. Yeah, I got a full dance floor lying out the fucking door, but everybody was dancing. Black, white, it didn't make any difference. So what did I do? All right. I'll teach you. I put on Che La Luna by Louis Prima. <laughs> Da, 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 and all the blacks on the dance floor. Da, 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 da. And, and the manager came over. He's, oh my god! I said, oh, don't worry about it. That's a true story. Yeah. And he, he never fucked with you after that. Right? Never fucked with me after that. It was a lost. It was a lost cause. Damn right. <laughs> it's funny in Buffalo, New York. You know, you. I was. We were reading up on you. You were working at all of these spots in Buffalo, New York, and everything. And uh, like when you were DJing out there and you would go back and forth to New York, would you go to Manhattan often to check out the clubs? Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I, we'd go to the underground, uh, um, uh, the Infinity, which is like at Broadway and 18th Street. And that's where Jim Burgess, some of the great DJs yeah. played. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, P.T. Barnum's, which was at an old bank. And it was a circus act over the dance floor with a net and all that, people on trapeze and all that. Wow. And then we'd go to Colony Records, and then we'd go to uh, you know all the record stores, and I. Buy so that was the um, the store to go to back in the days to buy vinyl. Colony Records. Colony Records was one of them, and uh, oh, what's the other one? Um, the, the Vinyl Mania. You know, where you wow. could actually put the record on and listen to it. You know, they had turntables, so you could listen to the record. Was and Vinyl Mania open in the seventies? Late seventies, yeah. Yeah. Oh wow! I didn't realize that because yeah, when know, when, yeah. when Larry Levan would play a hot record, the. Uh, that record store was packed the next day. We got to have this record Larry played, you know? Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. And then, uh, I, I'm kind of curious, like, where did you hear, like, beat matching for the first time? Like, was it in well, Manhattan? Was I, it I, I didn't. Uh, my mentor and dear friend, Marty Angelo, who was a real, on the forefront of the disco movement uh, in Buffalo, uh, he was a rock band manager in the 70s you know he has the grassroots and all these bands but he got into the disco thing in the 70s and he came back from new york because he had bands playing in uh at the scene which was a, a real happening place in in uh, in new york and uh, back in the late 60s and that's when he put the first sound system in buffalo like 1969 but he came back in this like 1975 when i had my first residency job because Charlie, you gotta learn how to beat mix. Fucking mean beat mix. Because DJs are putting records together, beat to beat, so people can dance continuously, continuously, you know, from record to record without stopping and falling over, you know, and it builds up the energy. So he he heard it in New York, and he taught me the basics. And I would go to this little club I worked at called the Fifth National Bank in the daytime when they were cleaning up the place on the night before, and I turned the sound system on, and I'd be practicing what he told me and trying to try to figure it out and eventually i did what were you how were you how were you like uh, i guess how were you learning at the time because you weren't referencing bpms were you no there wasn't really a, the bpm thing right back then so what were you guys how were you I, I, you know i would i would listen to records and i would what a lot some guys did they had a metronome really and you'd count the dun, 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 and you know and you'd put two records that had the same tempo and try to blend them together. I never knew that. At a certain With point. a metronome? Because I've seen pictures of that, those in the DJ booth, the, the little things. Yeah, 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 yeah. Are you serious? And I was wondering, yeah, what was that for? Yeah. Oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> really? Well, well, this one's the same speed as this one. You know? But then I had, but then I said, yeah, you got to put them together so they make sense. So I used to listen to bass lines. Bass lines and drums, you know, you know, to the, mm -hmm. that, that's... And then you hit, but back then there were no intros. There were 
mostly 45s and album cuts, so you didn't have the long intro of a 12-inch record that you could overlay and stuff like that. Right. So you had to, and these were all with live drummers before they had electronic drums to make records. Mm -hmm. And you know a live drummer is going to go up and down and up and down. And so you had to know when that drummer was going to get slower or faster you know, and, and, and blend the record, you know, as best you could, because there was a lot of orchestration back then. There was, you know, the Philly sound was all strings and horns and stuff, you know, it just wasn't a beat, you know. So you had to just practice and figure it out. Man. How Damn. long did it take you to um, get it? Probably to be real good, maybe a couple of months mm -hmm. before I figured out this is how it should be done. And all the other other DJs and dancers that came to my club would go to the other DJs. How come we're not playing the music like Charlie, man? We don't have to fall over each other between records. We just keep going. So they started. So you was the first DJ in um, Buffalo to play disco and to DJ this style the yeah, style of DJ to, to play to beat mix that style of DJ. There were guys playing funk and soul records early disco before me, you know, right? Like, seventy one, seventy two, and stuff in, in bars. But there, you know, there was a couple of big discos. There was Uncle Sam's, <laughs> and there was uh, uh, a place called Fridays and Saturdays, which was like the mecca of disco. Yeah. But the reason what made it so successful is because in Buffalo, as you probably know, half the colleges, University of Buffalo, and all that are all kids from New York City. So they would be mm. flocking to these clubs, and it's like they were really into the. They they sort of showed the Buffalo kids how it's done, man. We're from Brooklyn, now. we know how to dance this <laughs> funk stuff, and, and that that that's why I was fortunate enough to play in the good clubs where those kids went. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So like in the mid seventies to late seventies, if you weren't beat matching, you were like behind. Oh, you were fucking go get a job at Walmart. Or yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So that was the thing, like club owners, like, can you beat match? And be like, uh, yeah, like, our, can you do like, Charlie? Can't do that shit. Yeah, how come you don't play like Charlie? I had DJs come into my club, put a pad, writing down the songs I was playing. Oh yeah, they were stealing mixes. Oh Shazam, yeah. But it's always good to be. It's always good to be imitated. If you ask anybody who got their song sampled, you know. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, and but there was. Mostly the R&B and soul music, you know, until the European sound came out with uh, the music that the kids used to do the hustle to, you know, the real good dancers, you know, and, and uh, uh, there's so many good records by Loves and Kisses, by uh, Cerrone and all these all these acts. Giorgio Mavoto? Oh, Giorgio. I I got my first promo records from Casablanca was Giorgio Moroder, Nights in White Satin. And uh, I still have that. It was a real downbeat thing. But then the next record they sent me was Georgia Marauder from Here to Eternity. So I oh, put it on. It's like, holy shit. It's like all artificial was, music, all was electronic. This, was this before um, Donna Summer? Well, it was about the, it's about the same, same time. time. Donna Summer's came uh -huh. after mm -hmm. on Casablanca. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, uh, but yeah, Giorgio Marauder from Here to Eternity. And, and, and it was like, holy cow, listen to this. And he was using a thing called the Moog which was yeah, made in Buffalo, New York, mm -hmm. Moog Industries, not, not far from my house. And um, yeah, I was like, holy cow. You know, the beat is steady and everything. You can mix it in and out of this thing. It's all electronic. And uh, the, the, I, I, this one club I worked there for Isaac Saturdays, we had the best dancers in the city. They would be, it would be like uh, dance fever, you know, all the twirling around, all that stuff. And then you had the people that didn't dance too good. 
So he would come up to the booth. He goes, he had this gruff voice. His name was Ron Polini. We called him Budgie. Hey, can you, can you, oh, I love the stuff you're playing. All these dancers are beautiful, but can you throw something for the arm throwers and leg kickers? You know, like <laughs> people who didn't dance very well. You know? So I put on Brick House and shit like that. And they'd be like, yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. So it was like, I remember like, it was just a rare thing if you knew how to dance, right? Because everyone kind of knows if, how to dance if, a little bit now. If you didn't dance, you didn't get the girl back then. I mean, if you can go go up and, you know, groove with a girl <laughs> or spin her around doing the hustle and the salsa, oh man, you're the, the panties I dropped. feel like everybody knew how to dance back in the 70s. They did. They were, they were all freestyle fucking dancing. You had to dance. You wasn't going standing, not doing like you're doing now, like standing around, stand around like at the, the DJ. With the camera. He was yeah. dancing People back in the People were just dancing, 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 just funky dancing, freestyle, you know, like yeah. Soul Train, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, but like motherfuckers who didn't know how to dance, those are motherfuckers that listen to rock, right? Pretty much. Yeah, that's yeah. That, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's where the disco sucks thing came from because right. they couldn't get the girl. That's what it was, and right? they couldn't dress. Yeah, and then they they, they were losing their girls because the girls started going to like clubs, yeah. and dancing, yeah, and, and then. They're also like, you know, they were, it was also like a secret way of being homophobic and racist. Yeah, right? but, but in New York State, you got to remember up until 1985, only in New York State, the drinking age was 18. Yeah. Oh. It was 21 in most states around the country. And, uh, and the bars in Buffalo and New York City were the only ones that had licenses to stay up, stay open until four in the morning mm-hmm. or beyond. And uh, you go to senior prom. And then go to the disco after on the same night. You're 18 years old. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah. Wait, so like all of these dudes were just hating, right? Because they couldn't. Oh, yeah, they are hating. They are probably losing their girlfriend. But, but, you, know these what, dudes but too, you know what? Right? what? What started, too, is that because disco became so popular, some of the rock stations changed their format, and that pissed them off even yeah, more. I read about that. Yeah. 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 So wait, was that the pit, like the pivotal moment when there was that thing in Chicago, right? Yeah. Yeah. When it was like the disco demolition. Yeah. Yeah. In Chicago with that shock jock. Yeah, they blew up all the. Yeah. Disco the, was this, like Steve, Steve Doll. Steve or Doll. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then he he like they just exploded or like they bombed a bunch of vinyl. Yeah. Like soul and disco and, the, and everything. In the middle of the baseball field. Yeah. Right. yeah. In oh. the middle of baseball field. And then did they do that? Did that affect like was that the wave that started everything? Yeah, well that 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 affected a lot of record producers and small record labels. Um, you know, if a group had a new song out, it was like um, it was like chic. Uh, you know, when Nile Rodgers back in the end of the seventies, you know, if he had some a good new production out and the record companies would be you know, the disco stuff man they'd blown that shit up that ain't happening anymore really so that yeah. really affected that affected yeah. the temperament at the time well the great label TK Records was Casey and the Sunshine Band and all yeah. the groups he had um, Henry Stone who was one of the original record men back in the 50s he um, uh, he's guy gave me my first DJ promo record I Get Down Tonight when I went knocking on his door in Florida and um he was getting ready to sell TK Records to CBS Records for like a few million dollars, a lot of money back then. And he was hours away from signing it. And the executives at Columbia CBS said, no, fuck the disco thing. And no, no. We oh, really? oh, oh, shit. And he lost his revolving line of credit and Henry Stone. And Damn, that, was the end of T, that was the end of TK Records and Casey and the Sunshine Band. You know, it also affected the Bee Gees, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. A lot. Yeah. Well, you know, the Bee Gees had all those songs for Saturday Night Fever mm-hmm. already in the can. 
Yeah. Uh, and uh, but that was really the 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 like the shit that hit the fan was the Saturday Night Fever the movie, right? Yeah, it sort of like it, it sort of uh, <laughs> overhyped it, you know. And then everybody came out with a disco record. Yeah, I remember that. In that VH1 special, I was like, you know. Ethel Merman had a disco version of there's no business like show business. Who the fuck want to hear that? Right. Yeah, and all the, everybody jumped on it. But the little labels like Prelude and all them, they all survived into the 80s because they went back, disco went back to its... To like uh, fucking soul. Its soul roots with mm-hmm. Rick James, Prince, uh, all the stuff, a D-Train and all that. They, they went back to the original disco vibe. You know, from the early seventies, and they were able to survive through the eighties. So when you when you saw that shit going on at the time, what would you think of that? Like you saw that you probably I, I read thought, that shit. I, I thought it kind of sucked. I mean, I liked a lot of rock. You know, shit. I went to Led Zeppelin when they played in Buffalo. You yeah, know, yeah. In the seventies, and, and but uh, um, it was just um, it's like shit. What do we do now? But I was still getting record. I was on a mailing list from every major record label and independent. I would get promo records every week in the mail. And uh, I kept getting him, you know. It's like, you know, the, the Rick James thing came out in the late 70s with you and I. And then, uh, but then he, in the 80s, he did the, the Super Freak thing and all that. Prince came on board, you know, with all his mm-hmm. stuff. And, he, and George Benson, Give Me the Night. It all started coming back again. I said, oh, the, this is like, uh, you know. So wait, was this it, is still going to be cool. And Rapper's Delight, too. Yeah, and yeah. that came out. And King Tim III by Fatback, which came out before that. Mm-hmm. It was like... Um, Man, I guess this club stuff's gonna survive, you know. So it was like a rough couple six months. Yeah, it was a rough, rough, (laughs) rough time. Uh, I had to get rid of my fucking polyester pants before they caught on fire. Wait, so that really just destroyed everything? Even like, because I just think of Chicago, and I'm like, I don't, I can't fathom how a disc jockey in Chicago would affect nightlife or club scene or anything going on in New York. Yeah, yeah. No disrespect to Chicago. Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Especially because look at your house music that came out of Chicago. Yeah, it came out of Chicago. So I just can't fathom that it would affect the scene that much. It it sort of did at a marketing standpoint, uh, you know, because clothing companies had to change their style of clothes they were making. Right. You know, no more bell bottoms, no more platform shoes. We got to have something cool for the for the 80s now mm-hmm. and it's just that everybody had to adjust um the major record labels started putting out different stuff and the independent labels you know kept going kept their their niche you know mm-hmm. but uh it survived and here we are today yeah mm. you you mentioned rick james another <laughs> <laughs> another buffalo new york native oh buffalo yours, right Cocaine's a hell of a you, how did okay. you So I, I think you started blowing up in the late seventies, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, is that where you got the name Captain Disco? That how did that come? Uh, that started in that's like a, actually that's, 19- that's a hell of a fucking name. Yeah, 76. There was a club called the Club Seven Forty Seven before I worked there. Yeah. And um that was a hot club. And the DJs that were playing there. They weren't beat mixing yet either. But so I was in this club and I thought I'd do a spoof and make fun of the club 747. So I had this helmet at home, which I still have. It's a Steve Canyon helmet. Steve Canyon was a TV series in the 50s. So I, I was in my booth, I put this helmet on and I'm calling myself Captain Disco just to make a, a joke of, of the 747. And unfortunately, it stuck. But. Really? 
made me famous, I guess. Really? Yeah, it was just a spoof that stuck. Jesus, the nerve. You're the original DJ to wear something in his head, huh? Yeah, oh yeah, fuck Marshmallow. I had the fucking, and the dead mouth. I had, I had, I was Captain Disco with a helmet on. I still, and I still got it. So wait, what is this club Mulligan's? Mulligan's Nightclub was owned by Michael Militello. That was the, like the first, was that like the really big celebrity oh, club? Oh, it was the King Kong and Nightclub. In Buffalo, Club. New York, It was right? King Kong and Nightclubs. They, uh, it was opened up in like 1971, two, and um, Marty Angelo had put the first sound system in Mulligan's Brick Bar, which was a small bar the same owner owned, Michael Militello owned, and, uh, in 1969. And uh, he opened up, it was a restaurant with a dance floor, and Marty Angelo was the first DJ there. And uh, he ended up opening up a back room, which is like the VIP room. That's where OJ, Rick James, Elliot Gould used to come in town with his friends. Elliot, Elliot Gould. Gould. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, OJ, OJ used to come in with Elliot Gould. You know, Elliot Gould looks like a fucking scumbag. <laughs> 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 I can't even imagine what these guys yeah. were doing. He was doing, yeah. and he was hanging with OJ. Oh, oh my yeah, God. yeah. When OJ came to, and when OJ came back to town in the eighties, you know, because he left the NFL, left the Bills like seventy nine or whatever. Yeah, yeah. The first go for one year, and uh, but he would always come back because he had stuff going on there. And uh, Elliot Gould would come in here, and other people, all the athletes, uh, all the Buffalo Bills, the Sabers, the you know, I'd have Bruce Smith in my sound booth, and uh, he had would touch the ceiling. Um, all all the great hockey players and everybody it, it was it was the place to be wow. and uh i'll never forget oj got in a oj got in an argument with their driver one of the guys and they started scuffling and it's one mob guy who was smoking a cigar he gets a cigar and squishes oj's oh <laughs> shit what yeah <laughs> What did OJ do? <laughs> well, we didn't want to know what OJ did. <laughs> yeah, it was, they were, um, you know, settled down and all that stuff. What was, it, what was the song playing at the time? Do you oh, remember? Oh, God, I don't know. <laughs> but, yeah, of course, Rick James, just, that was his hangout. And whenever he had a new... new you, have so, you have so many Rick James stories. Oh, well, whenever he had a new record out, his valet, Callie, who was also a DJ, would come and bring me Super Freak here. Super Freak, this new release, blah, 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 blah. You know, and he relored... Um, uh, he had a big ranch in, outside of Buffalo, including his place he had in uh, you know in in L.A. Wait, and, did uh, you ever go to his place, his ranch in Buffalo? Oh yeah, yeah, probably two days at a time. Really? <laughs> <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> I've heard, I've heard, I, I made it. To, I made it to work on Monday. <laughs> uh, Wait, you were working at the same time while you were DJing and doing all this shit? I got my airline job in 1978. Oh. And then, then I was still DJing and doing both things in the 80s. And yeah, it, Rick would come to the club, and after that, we'd all go out to the ranch. You, know? <laughs> you knew Rick James before he started to sing, right? Yeah, Rick James came to um, my club with a buddy of mine, and he was hanging out, handing out little white label 45s of a song called Get Up and Dance. It's, this is my, this, I'm Rick James. This is my new track. You know, and, you know we, he didn't have did a Motown say, deal he yet. He said I'm Rick James, bitch? No, he didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, <laughs> he should have. 
But yeah, the song. Jay, the, bitch, the song play my song. The, the, play my song, <laughs> bitch. Bald motherfucker. Bald motherfucker. Oh, I hear it like Tony Monaro yeah, back then. I always called Charlie Harry Reams. If anybody knows who Harry Reams is, I read. Oh, when I hit the mustache. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 70s porn star. Yeah, the porn star mustache. Like polyester pants. Oh, and yeah. Big, look like Super Mario Brothers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, they used to hang out. Mary Jane girls would sit in the booth next to, oh, next wow. to my sound really? booth. And really? Maxie had a big, long fingernail on her pinky. She'd uh, go, Charlie, can I use the sound booth? She'd have the fucking little, her big pinky fingernail, you know. And, uh, and um, yeah, I got a funny Rex James. <laughs> it's a true fucking story. He'd come in my booth one night. I love this story. Was, I think. Charlie, man, I got it. I know you got it. I know you got it. I was like, Shit cost me a hundred fucking dollars, man. That's a lot of money in 1983. And uh, he takes it, dumps the whole thing on my record. I was like, fuck. <laughs> and um, wait a minute, you had to buy the drugs off of Vic James? No, no, he had. I Rick have James a, took his drugs. I have. No, a, I have. I, I, oh, yeah. Shit. He goes, Charlie. I know you got it. I know you got it. I said, Well, okay, here, just do a little. Dumps the whole record. Hoovered it right off my record. I said. Fuck. He goes, don't worry, I'll get some of the, I, 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 I got, all right. In the meantime, my record's running out. Oh, shit, I got to queue up the record. It was Let It Whip by the Daz Band. Nice. And it's like, bum, 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 bum. There's a rock stuck on the record. I'm going like, I'm going like this. I'm trying to get it off the record. Uh, yeah, I, <laughs> I always need a refresher on that because I, I, tell, I tell that story often. I that's, do. A, that's a true story. I probably a, told that story a hundred times. Yeah. But I, I think I tell, I tell it, I, I, I twisted it. I got it fucked up. So it's, it's <laughs> I would always say, you would just delivered a, a promo copy of Daz Band, Let It Whip. Rick James is in the booth. He'll play that shit again, Charlie, or something like that. Standing over your shoulder and he starts like, you know, kind of bopping his head and I thought a rock fell out of his nose. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. no. <laughs> I mean, my version's good too, but I, the original is what I, I did, I The remix is pretty cool. But that's a true yeah. story. Yeah. Yeah. I gotta get off. And, uh, but yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a fun time. Yeah. And, uh, and you had a collection in the, in the DJ booth too, in the, in the wall. Yeah, well, I, I, after the club closed, somebody else, <laughs> some, somebody else bought <laughs> bought the club and where the sound booth used to be they put some water purifier or water something something in a water tank and when they tore the walls out to do the electricity they found about a hundred empty bags in the wall there was a little hole in the wall we used to stuff the empty bags in the wall <laughs> <laughs> it's like an avalanche of little yeah, cocaine bags you could have scraped them off and had an eight ball I, I bet. love it damn man but yeah that was uh, the <laughs> I'm, I'm actually kind of shocked that Rick didn't have coke on him. Yeah, that maybe he's oh, taking your stuff. Oh, oh, maybe maybe just, used it. Just that. Oh yeah, he probably used just it that on one night. Just that one night. Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, but uh, yeah, it. Um, yeah. It was, uh, Charlie, be honest. How much coke have you done? You know, in the seventies, <laughs> only the seventies. I ain't gonna talk about. Oh, not hardly any in the seventies. What? Only, only, the, only because nineties. Only because really the the rich people could afford it, mm. but they would share to the. People in the you know yeah could have paid well hundred dollars at that time sounds crazy fucking yeah. hey, it was a lot of money yeah how much uh, did you gain for a hundred if you don't a gram a gram yeah wow that was your whole pay for the night that was a whole pay for the night <laughs> wow I could have bought a new fucking car instead of coke and uh, but in the uh, in the eighties that's when I got 
crazy, you know, as, as that book will tell you that life yeah. is death on a dance floor. Yeah, yeah. That's that's true. They, they, you know, that's when AIDS kicked in. That's when like excessive lifestyles kicked in, like the cocaine, the heroin, and stuff, and everything that people didn't like New York and L.A. and shit and whatever. But uh, so the seventies, you you weren't really indulging in that. That was like a once in a while. If yeah, someone, once if, in a while. You know, Rick James, Rick James or any or any celebrity or anyone rich just yeah, came yeah. in. He just wanted to give you a hit. Or yeah, yeah. Like that. Wow. And uh, 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 yeah, just give me a shot of Crown and I'm happy. Yeah, <laughs> shot of Crown and a pack of Marlboro. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, wait, so uh, you never went to? So you did go to his ranch? Oh yeah, because I've heard Orchard Park. I've I've heard stories about his ranch. Well, his recording studio joint was in the basement. And yeah, we recorded a lot of hits and stuff. That's where Eddie Murphy did his shit at. That's where they did party all the time and filmed the video when he's coming down the stairs. That's going to the stairs of the basement. <laughs> oh, that's the, the actual. Joint. Oh yeah. shit! Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, were you there? <laughs> I huh? think they were snowed in or something. That, I see what you did oh, there. Oh yeah, they I see were, what you did there. Huh? Yeah, they, they were <laughs> they, they they were stowed in when they when they did that. Yeah, for like that two record, days. Video. Yeah, yeah. yeah, two, three days. We had a blizzard back then. So, and then they came in with the song, I, My Girl Wants to Party All the Time. Yeah, my, my girl party all the time. And yeah, and it uh, it was recorded in the basement at the joint. But I heard that ranch was basically like... The original Bunny Ranch? It was borderline <laughs> like a brothel. No, yeah. no. no it was, I, mean, I mean, saying that there was just so many girls there all the time. Oh. Like, that. It was, there were so many girls there that... Like local Buffalo, New York cops would stop by. Local Buffalo cops did his security for him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because part of the deal was, uh, if you saw that thing tails in the tour bus, that's what I got it from. Well, that that's yeah. He had Buffalo cops doing his security, make sure nobody got high and drowned in his indoor pool and shit, or got in trouble, you know, whatever. That's why. Yeah, because yeah, <laughs> he not, was, a, Rick, not Rick, again. Rick used to fix the cops up. <laughs> Rick, Rick used to Rick used to hook up the cops with the hottest girls in fucking Buffalo, and they would bring a bag full of the best cocaine they confiscated. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, shit. All the shit that they confiscated, they would bring. Yeah. Them. yeah. Oh fuck. And Rick would hook them up with bitches. They would come in with a duffel bag. They would come in with a duffel bag of just like cocaine. Just, yeah, confiscated coke or any drugs, yeah, right? Yeah. Wow. I remember when, when the I, evidence room, like the I, evidence room. I, I guess I, it I was at the ranch. I was at, <laughs> yeah. I was at the ranch one night. Rick goes, Charlie, man, I got to do I got I got to get freaky in my in my my bedroom. I got these two chicks and he had, there was a big long hallway that went to his bedroom and his all his clothing was in multiple closets. Yeah. So I go down there. He goes, um, Charlie, man, I got something for you on the kitchen table. Yeah, okay. It was a coffee, coffee cup saucer with a pile on it. <laughs> Jesus. Like, God damn. So I had these couple, two, three girls. We go in a swimming pool. We're all naked. The dishes next to the pool. The Buffalo cop there watching, making sure everybody was okay. The life yeah, off dude. He's a lifeguard. Off lifeguard. Cop. <laughs> yeah, he's a lifeguard. And. Of course, the shit would get all wet. Once it gets wet, it's no good. I yeah. oh, fuck. God, I threw it in the pool. Yeah. <laughs> what? It goes into your bloodstream? <laughs> Damn, man. Yeah. And Rick had this, Rick had a big walk-in closet full of boots. And he has, you see in some of the videos, there's white fur cowboy boots. He said, Rick, I want these fucking, I want these fucking cowboy boots. He goes, you, you can put them on your big feet. You can fucking have them. Of course, I took a ten and a half, and he took like a nine. And I'm like trying to, oh, I gotta get these things out. <laughs> like if the glove, 
does a fit. You <laughs> must have yeah. quit. You know, I was, I, would, I, was try, I was trying to put the trying to put these fur cowboy boots I want, and I couldn't. Have, oh, that was the end of the cowboy boots for me. <laughs> God damn. Um, so you were just hanging out at the ranch, just hanging out, doing coke by the pool with cops watching you, it, making sure you didn't drown. Yeah. <laughs> and um, did you ever hang out with Charlie Murphy? No, I never. No. I never you never found that. I saw. I saw when he brought Eddie Murphy to a club that I hung out with. It was a rock bar, big popular club in in, in Buffalo, and everybody's going, "Hey, hey, Eddie, hey, motherfucker, hey!" And he goes to Rick. We're at the bar. And he goes to Rick. You take me to another bar like the one in Forty Eight Hours. I'll kill you. Yeah. <laughs> 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 and uh, but yeah, it, um, it was it, it was a fun time. But unfortunately, I can imagine. But unfortunately, I'm here. To, or fortunately, I'm here to tell the story, which a lot of my friends weren't. I lost a lot mm. of friends from AIDS and and, and drug overdose. A, a lot of uh, everybody who ran the dance music department, all the major labels, most of them were gay, and they yeah. all started disappearing one after another. All my friends who serviced me with records, all the crew from Casablanca and, uh, uh, and all these other labels, it's like, man, what happened to so and so? Who's not here anymore? You know. And that and that sort of changed the whole environment too. And, and that was like the eighties. Yeah, that was the eighties. That's when it was like people started disappearing. You know, I would go to these clubs and, hey, have you seen so and so? No, he's he's gone. You know, it's, oh jeez, I didn't know that. You know, and yeah, it was uh, uh, AIDS killed everybody. Did you cut back on the partying like when all this started to happen? Not really. Um, I always had a good girlfriend. Mm-hmm. And they sort of kept me, kept me grounded. Yeah, kept me grounded. Mm-hmm. And a girl I met in the uh, uh, early 1990s um, at a club. She was like 13 years younger than me. Real cute. But we stayed there for three years, and she sort of saved me from all that. Wow. Yeah, I was like, okay, time to the party's over. But I was still DJing in the 90s. But it was like I, I, I survived a time when uh, a lot of people didn't. I mean, a lot of things changed in the '80s, right? Oh, it changed. It went went from crazy to like, oh shit, we gotta stop this. It's like, you know, this is out of control. You know, what, what was out of control? The the, the drugs. You know, really? people started getting busted. You know, the the Colombians and stuff in, in Florida in the '80s. Right, you know, the, right. the, the, killing, co- the cocaine killing, cowboys, the, the cocaine cowboys, and the cartels and. Uh, yeah, but it it was um, it was a dangerous time. Wow, you know. So it, shit started hitting the fan in the eighties, pretty much. Yeah, wow. That and and it just uh, got out of control. Mm. And um, but I can still tell a story, and I'm lucky I'm able to. Yeah, well, I mean, we're happy about that too. Yeah. God damn, right. God damn, Charlie. I mean, it was. <laughs> yeah, I mean, let me tell you. Captain Disco would have crashed his fucking plane if he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. You me, you, Charlie, you put me onto a website called disco-disco.com, I think. Uh, discomusic.com. Discomusic.com. Yeah. But, uh, you know, not to not to go back down the a little darker path, but yeah, I mean, it, to, to Charlie's point, you know, I wasn't around, I was very young in the 80s, you know, I mean, uh, but uh, on that website, there's a list of all these influential people in the scene from record promoters to yeah. artists to producers to DJs to everybody. And and they kind of, they had they have their status next to like yeah. deceased. All, all the great like, DJs, yeah. the greatest of them all. I thought Jim Burgess, you know, he died and, uh, you know, Frank Houlihan, a lot, a, a lot of the great DJs, they 
overdosed or he got AIDS or whatever. And these were the guys that we used to go to New York to see in the 70s. Like, oh, we got to hear this guy spin. You know, wow, you know. And uh, a lot of them are all gone. Yeah. You know, we, we've, uh, when we were in South by Southwest, we were asking a bunch of DJs this question. And it was kind of like, you know, what was the best decade or era to DJ? And uh, like a lot of people said the 70s. Oh. And, and uh, they kept mentioning Studio 54. And so when we posted this video of all these DJs, you know, talking about Studio 50, I wish I went to Studio 54 and the 70s, there are all these other DJs in the comments like, why are you guys mentioning Studio 54? You guys should be mentioning like The Loft, uh, you guys Paradise, should be mentioning Paradise, Paradise Garage. Garage, The Limelight, The Infinity, yeah. The Saint. Yeah, yeah, Mud Club, like yeah, all of these joints. Yeah, CBGB's, uh, but, but I wanted the to ask West. you, what was your favorite club? In the seventies, during that era of the 70s. my favorite club was the Infinity. Infinity. Where was that at? at like Broadway and Eighteenth, I think. It was. Uh, uh, saw some hot girls. That's when they were wearing their little hot pants and shit in the summertime in New York City. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 and what wait, it was? Wait, you know what? I got a question. The Infinity was that the Underground? No. Okay. The Underground was a different club. That was Broadway and Eighteenth Street. Yeah. Exactly. The Infinity was down for yeah. Okay, that's all right. In fact, Johnny Siglia, he spun. Uh, he spun at the underground. Okay. And uh, the infinity was all mirrored. And it had like neon, like, let's say like lights like these, neon, only they were neon rings all over the club that'd be flashing, boom. But the club wasn't real big, but it was big enough, but it was all mirrored, all four walls. Hence the name infinity. Yeah, yeah, so it looked like infinity. So hey man, let's check out that part of the club. We'd be all double, <laughs> hey, boom. <laughs> <laughs> fucking maze you walk you walk into the mirrors you know like, oh shit i thought this club went further over you know and th that that was the whole thing of the club it was like, like a enter the dragon bruce yeah. lee yeah yeah it was, it was like <laughs> oh yeah that was your favorite huh that and uh during the billboard disco conventions we uh, we would go to all every record label had a party at a different club mm -hmm. and uh, i went to the 12 west and that's where jim burgess had done a set and it was a TK, I think TK Records party. And uh, always amazing. He was playing Sarone's Love in C Minor, which is a big, long instrumental, one of the first Euro popular records. And he took Larry Gaynor's Never Can Say Goodbye and wrote it underneath it. Oh, wow. From beginning to end. And I was like, God damn. <laughs> and uh, it was like a live blend. Oh, yeah, it was live blend. Yeah. Mm. And. Um, um, yeah, with live drummers going up and down, he would just work the, work the pit and drag the turntable, and it, it was amazing. And Frank Houlihan at the Ice Palace 57, which was downstairs at 57 West 57th Street, that was one of my favorite clubs, too. Wow. And Frank Houlihan, he was amazing. And, um, but yeah. Did you ever make it into Studio 54? Studio 54 in the 70s at the Billboard Disco Convention. A lot of my DJs like that I talk to, they fucking hate that, like that. Well, now what Studio Fifty Four stood for? Yeah, Do you well, know. What well, I mean? there was two eras. There right. was Studio Fifty Four in the seventies. Then when it closed down, the new owners took it over in the eighties. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And uh, but in seventy, everybody with a credential from the Billboard Disco Forum, which ended up morphing into the New Music Seminar and the thing in Florida now and all that. But it all started with the Billboard Disco Forum in the seventies. And it was at like the Americana. They had it once at the Hilton there in New York City. And uh, if you had your credential, the Bill Wardlow this president of Billboard magazine made a deal with uh, Steve Rubell. Anybody with a credential can come in and see the club. Okay, it was cool. So what happens? We all go to the Studio 54. 
shitloads of people outside in a hot summer night, and they wouldn't let anybody in. And Bill Wardlow was furious. So finally, I saw a friend of mine who worked for a record label. After two hours, <laughs> come on, I'll get you in. And we went in. I thought, I'm going to see all my friends. So we're walking in. You walk through the doors. You walk down the hall, and yeah, and then you go into the club. And, and uh, they're my friends who are at the Billboard Disco Forum with me. You know, they had gotten in earlier. So I'm going to go there and hang out with my friends. I'm walking in there. They're, they're leaving. I see them walking. Where are you going? Man, we've been here for two hours. Yeah, well, I've been outside for two hours. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but it, it was cool. You know, the, um, um, not Richie Kazor DJ there. Uh, they had a bunch of really good DJs. But they had a lot of different DJs. Tony Smith, he DJed later on. And, um, but, but there were better clubs. I don't know. Why you don't hear about the other clubs? You, you only hear about Studio 54. Because Studio 54 had all the publicity, good and yeah. bad, and that's where all the celebrities went. Mm -hmm. But the clubs were, you know, you had the underground. Mm -hmm. You had uh, the, the, the 12 West, which was a big predominantly gay club. The Flamingo, which was a big gay club, which was a spectacular club musically. And uh, first gay club I ever went in, by the way, during the, during the Billboard Disco Forum. It was the Casablanca Records uh, party. And uh, my friend... I was with Marty Angelo, and he goes, just don't stare. You know, just, uh, <laughs> you know, you see these big buff bodybuilders like, yeah, hanging out on the couch, you know, and all that. don't look, don't look, you know. Don't look too much. <laughs> don't look too much. So anyway, there was uh, this tranny who was about 6'4". <laughs> 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 and her platform, you know, I've never seen anything like that before. I'm like, it's like, well, she thought I was interested. Marty told me, I told you not to stare. That's <laughs> the flamingo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have a question. One of my friends' mom used to go to Studio uh, 54, and she said that they, everybody was on something even if you weren't taking anything because they would throw drugs in the vents. Uh, oh, I don't know about that. The but, punch, though, right? But, oh, yeah, the punch. But, but, oh, another thing. When you went to the bathroom there, and at the, um, what was the other big club? Another, another big club in New York. When you're up against the urinal, there was a little deck there, you know, to put your drink on when you're taking a piss. But there were also grooves cut in it. <laughs> so, oh, oh, you put it in the groove, you put it in a nice That's little That's such line. a great amenity. In the groove, yeah. Wow. You're taking a piss and, and at the same time. With the, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Damn. Oh, uh, yeah, it was, it was nuts. How about um, Pavlis? Not, not a Studio 54 in the 80s was different. Uh, they hit, still had that. That, uh, that that's when John Sigley worked there, right? And uh, they had a lot of great DJs in in the eighties. But you know what? That's that's when the Wall Street yuppies and shit with their cocaine and attitude started going to the clubs in Manhattan and ruined the whole vibe of like a club being for everybody. You know? Yeah, that's yeah. actually the first club I ever went to, Studio Fifty Four, back in nineteen eighty. Yeah, but that's when it was like a freestyle, freestyle night. Yeah, party yeah, with Louis Vega. Yeah, yeah. You know, Maddie, Maddie O, Maddie Olson, our friend. Yeah, uh, uh, his dad, his father, his father owned it yeah. for a while. Oh, really? Jimmy O, I think his name was Jimmy Olson. Olson yeah, he was a partner in Studio Fifty Four yeah. in the eighties for the, the second owners out. Yeah. Shit. Shout, yeah. to, shout to Maddie Olson. I know, yeah. We, we got to get him on. Yeah, I'm about to say oh, that. Oh, Maddie would yeah. be fun. Yeah, <laughs> Maddie would be great. Yeah. That, but, fucking, um, that fucking Boston I, I, I worked <laughs> in, in, in the 80s. In the 80s. The guy who worked the door at my club in, in, in Buffalo, 
God rest his soul, Kevin Rozier, who I managed in the first UFC. He moved to New York City, and he got a job in the mailing department at Chrysalis Records. So what happens was the guys, this is in the 80s, the guys and his friends at the studio would call him because he was dealing shit you know, on the side. Mm-hmm. So he worked in the mailing department. So they would say, um, uh, Kevin, I, I need to get an LP tonight and a couple of those new singles. That meant an LP was an eight ball, a single was a gram. He'd put them in the record jackets. He'd walk up to the door. I'm for Kevin Rogers for Chrysalis Records. I got some records for the DJ. Okay, right. And they'd let him oh, write shit. in. That, that's what. <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> yeah. Did you, uh, did you interact at all with Francis Grasso? No, never did. Okay. Okay. Who's Francis Grasso? He was the first guy that really came out with the beats per minute. Oh, yeah, really. He was one of the early. He was one of the blenders, early kind of early blenders. Mixers. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like he's yeah. like an unsung hero in yeah. the world. Like absolutely, big time. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. If you ever get, uh, it, it's. I think it's kind of hard to purchase. You could. I think I might have it uh, uploaded on um, YouTube. Check out Maestro. It's a DVD. Actually, I have the DVD. Yeah, I have the, yeah, the Maestro. If you still yeah. have a DVD player, it's 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 really it's really <laughs> that's awesome. fucked to say. You still have a DVD player? <laughs> well, Char- Charlie gave me a bunch of CDs. I, I was. Do you like, have hey, a CD? I was like, I don't know if I have a CD player. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you can Shit, throw it in. A, you can throw it in a laptop. You know, like, they don't have CDs like players. You don't have them. You eight tracks. I was like, all right, you might. No, I think I got a CDJ somewhere though. So I'm gonna check this shit. <laughs> Figure out how to play it. Or just buy a car that's ten years old that still has a CD. Yeah, yeah. that's true. First, get a license. Actually, my 2017 Mustang has a CD player in. It, oh, yeah. Believe it or not, we just cruise around. <laughs> yeah, get that shit. Wait, so wait. Did you like going back? Did you ever like link up with any of these like Larry Levan? Did you know him? No, you were no. You know, I but you used know. to go to the Paradise Garage, right? I went to the Paradise Garage once during the Billboard Disco Forum. It's when Van McCoy did his first solo record mm. after Van McCoy Soul City Symphony. Because you have to be a, you have to and, be a member. And Keith Barrow. Well, we got in there because we had credentials from the Billboard Disco Forum. Got it. And uh, that was the first time when Salso brought the promo of uh, uh, Got My Mind Made Up by Instant Funk. Brought it to Larry to play that night. And it... There's an anthem too up there. Right? Oh, and the people went fucking nuts. And that was the first time I ever saw. That's where you you used to walk up the, the ramp and had the candles, you know, on the floor. You went up, and uh, I look over. They had the, a Richard Long sound system with these big bass bins, and uh, there was a guy, kind of guy in the in the bass bin like this. Just shooting up in the oh, Jesus. And I was like, wow, this is freaky. And uh, Keith Barrow played that night. So it was just everywhere. Everyone, people were shooting up, doing drugs out in the open in the Paradise that, garage, that, right? Well, the, what I saw was a guy in the, in the basement. I didn't see much, but everybody was doing poppers. and. You know. So you never went to go back or you just, mm-hmm. that wasn't your thing, Paradise Garage? No, I just went there because I happened to be in New York City. No, I'm saying, but you never went to go back again. You was just like, eh, it's all right. Well, I, I saw it, you know. Oh, really? And uh, and uh, I went to the underground, which I loved, and uh, you know the Infinity, and uh, you know there was uh, in the Ice Palace '57. But in the '80s, I didn't go to too many clubs there because I, you know, I was doing my thing in Buffalo. I've never heard anyone talk about Paradise Garage like you just did. I know, like, right? Like I, I saw. I mean, it was cool, but I was no, up in Buffalo. I, 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 the don't, ranch. I don't think. I don't think he's like. It, it was cool. It was a, mostly. Yeah. It was mostly a gay and black and uh, Latino crowd. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wanted to go to a place where there was bitches. 
Charlie, Charlie wanted the bitches in the Quaaludes. <laughs> wanted the bitches. <laughs> <laughs> Did you do any Quaaludes? Hey, man, I had hair like fucking John Travolta back then. I was the shit, <laughs> <Yeah>. man. <laughs> I had the, I had I the mustache, that. man. I was ready to go. Like Denny Terrier. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so you're like, I'm not going to waste my time here. I'm not going to waste my time there. Yeah. <laughs> I mean that makes sense yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it was cool to experience it with Larry who wasn't a great mixer but he played great music I was going to ask you that yeah, yeah. He, he, we got into an argument with some DJs uh, we were saying that we heard he wasn't a great mixer and they was like what do you talk about he was the best mixer no he wasn't yeah he could have you wanted you know who was it was Boogie Blind uh, Boogie Blind yeah Boogie Blind and, and there was another DJ also that was like yeah there was a couple DJs that were just saying like you guys are full of shit y'all don't know guys, what you're there, talking there about there are tapes out there of Larry yeah. LeVance that's what I said yeah <laughs> yeah a little train no but they, they were they were saying basically for every tape that you heard of him like kind of like mixing out of like kind of train wrecking train wrecking there were other mixes where he was on point, was, but, but, I, but I, towards I, but towards the end, like when he was kind of like ill, yeah. not not yet the healthiest. The, those were the days of the train wrecking kind of mixes. That's yeah, but but thinking. his big thing was playing a record. Like yeah. when, when he just had a great selection. Yeah, you know, the, one of the co-owners of the garage. You know, they, they owned West End Records. You know, Mel Shrin. Yeah, and, and they gave him uh, Tanya Garner's heartbeat. Yeah, you know, he put it on, cleared the dance floor. And, and and he would just like play it again and again and again and play it for like a half an hour. <laughs> really? It's like you're gonna like this record sooner or later. Heartbeat and cleared the yeah, dance floor. Yeah. And then after that, when he put it on, a week later, ah, they went crazy. Wow. Yeah. You know, and everybody went out and bought the record. Yeah. But he, if he believed in a record, he would just loop it and play it and play it and play it and <laughs> stick it up their ass until yeah. they liked it. You gonna ne- like this shit? Never. I think you and I saw a Funk Master Flex do that. Would drop it like it's hot. It like. Oh yeah. <laughs> Drop it like it's hot. Cleared the dance floor. It hadn't popped yet. Yeah, and he's like, "Nope, I'm bringing it." He's like, "I will not stop playing this record until this dance floor is full." He probably brought it back about fifteen, probably fifteen times. Yeah, really, Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's crazy. I will say though that if I play a new record and it doesn't really hit. I, I double down and I bring it back and I talk on a mic like okay and I amp it up again. Yeah. I think we need to do that more. I, well, that I know. I think you like, sell the record. I think you, you know? need to sell it and you need to be like arrogantly confident, confident. about yeah, I love that man. Like you guys don't know this is the shit. And I would pl- I would play it again. I would play it again three hours later. That's a lost. <laughs> I, think that, I think that's a lost element in a lot of DJ sets. Is yeah. like oh it didn't work. You just shelf it and yeah, maybe yeah. you go back to it uh, if it popped. But I, I think that was, that was a big part of what we did in yeah. the past yeah. was selling a record, breaking yeah. a record, working a record. And it, it was amazing. And as far as Larry goes with, you know, everybody that I heard that has heard him play live has shared that the yeah. same sentiments. He's like, mm-hmm. he wasn't the strongest mixer, but he created, he had total control, control of that club. Yeah. He had, you know, they had the lighting and the, and the HVAC controls on a sliding control that you know he would they would slide over to him and he would kind of take control of the entire ship musically temperature wise everything i mean he he created you know a vibe and and i think that that the fact that he wasn't known as the greatest mixer adds to his legend and adds to his genius i think i think it's a cool but he was the most influential for breaking records you know if he played a record 
that record was the real deal. And he, him and Frankie Crocker were like, you know, yeah. Frankie Crocker yeah. was going to garage to find out like the new shit. And then, you know. And then he would play it on the radio. Yeah. yeah. They're, that's they're, that's they're, powerful, they're, man, because Frankie yeah. Crocker was king of New York, that, too. Mm-hmm. A, you got, yeah. He was king. Frankie Crocker, another homeboy from Buffalo. Oh, is he? <laughs> he got a start on WUFO, an AM uh, R&B station. Oh shit! Oh yeah, before he went to uh, before he went to New York City. Yeah. You you broke a couple records. You broke like uh, Planet Rock. Oh right? yeah, yeah. Before anybody, you played it. So wait, you this this is when you were they broadcasting live from the club while you were. Well, I, I had a I had a radio mix show on WBLK. You did. They yeah. gave me a reel to reel to take home and record like half hour sets. Mm-hmm. To play on the air. We did a show called SOS, The Sound of the Streets. Like a two inch reel? Like, yeah, just like a TAC reel to reel. Wow. You know, just a regular reel to reel. Oh my God. And they would put it on the radio station and play it, you know, and then do the commercials between it and stuff. Holy shit. And Tommy Silverman sent out promo copies of Planet Rock, Soul Sonic Forest, and uh, I put it on and I was like, fuck. This is this is like the future. I ran down a WBLK. So you sounded so high when you said that right now. Oh, yeah. they, were you high when you heard this shit? Oh no, but it made me it made me high. And I was like, ah, oh, what's this? Chris Sexman. But it was uh, so I ran down a WBLK and the uh, program director Lee Zimmerman. So what do you got there? I said, you got to hear this record. You got to hear this record. Is this is the future? So we go up to the studio when their DJ was playing it was in the afternoon and WBLK was a powerhouse uh, uh, FM station that George Hound Dog Lorenz who was one of the old school DJs in the 50s yeah. on radio he, he's, that was his radio station but was this national or no 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 okay it was uh, you heard it all over western New York and southern Ontario Canada it was a powerful uh, wow. FM station and uh, so Lee Zimmerman takes a record we go in to Charlie said to put this record on. It's unbelievable. He goes, well, it's not on our uh, playlist. Yeah, yeah. He goes, I'm the program director. Put it on. <laughs> <laughs> he put it on, and the phones rang off the hook. What really? is this fucking record? You got They go, can we keep this record? I said, no, it's the only one I got. You'll have to wait till Tommy Boy said they didn't send it out to radio yet. And I told Tommy Silverman what I did, and then I went up and charted it. I was a reporter for a publication called Behind the Scenes that was located in that building. And the, the girl who ran her name was Mickey Turntable. And uh, she was so influential, record executives would call her on Friday to see if they were going to have a job on Monday. That's how important wow. she was. And, um, and I told Tommy Silverman, he went, are you kidding me? I said, yeah. He goes, nobody's radio's got this record yet. He goes, this record goes gold. You're going to get a gold record. Did I get my gold record? Fuck no. (laughs) Thanks, Tommy. And he just sold the label for like $100 million. He bought Amherst Records too, the Amherst Records catalog, a label I worked for. And uh, yeah, and that was when uh, Soul Sonic Forest broke. And uh, numbers by Kraftwerk, when Warner Brothers sent it to our record pool, one of our DJs, Patrick Cray, took it to Martin Luther King Park on Juneteenth Day. There were thousands of people there he put on numbers by craft work and they went crazy i've never heard the record like this before buffalo was influential because we were on the canadian border Mm -hmm. and a lot of canadians all listen to buffalo radio and they and and vice versa but the bars in canada would close at one o'clock and like hey bars of buffalo are open till four that's an hour 45 minute drive from toronto so they'd leave toronto at like 11 at the peak time and come back down and party in buffalo for another three hours really yeah and, and uh 
And uh, if they were sober enough, they drove back. But if not, they got a hotel room to spend the night. But they were really in tune to new music. They play a lot of progressive stuff in, in Toronto and stuff that came over from the UK and all that. So you mm-hmm. could really, and then between them and the college kids of New York City, it was like heaven playing in like two, three clubs in Buffalo that they all went to. Wow. So wait, is it true that you helped break another record, which was a disco inferno? Oh, um, well, Mickey Turntable had a Christmas party every year. Yeah. And every record executive in America came to her Christmas party because it's Mickey Turntable. You got to be in her good graces. And I was at the Club 747, and all the um, record execs had their hotel rooms there. So uh, Vince Faris, who was vice president of Atlantic Records promotion, and uh, uh, Primus Robinson, who was the R&B promotion director, he came up to me, he goes, man, I like this club so much and I like you DJing. You're gonna get the Tramp's new album before anybody else. And this was on a weekend. A few days later, I got an express mail, I got a record in the envelope. It says, uh, Happy New Year's from the Tramps. I opened it up, it was the album, it's white label. I still got it, it's with Disco Inferno on it. Oh shit. This is six months before Saturday Night Fever came out. Wow. Yeah. So I remember on, on, on New Year's Eve, uh, I played I played Disco Inferno on New Year's Eve, nineteen seventy-seven, at the club seven forty-seven. Yeah, wow! I still got that record. So you were one of the first to ever fucking play that shit. Yeah, in a club. Vince wow. Farisa, I'm gonna make sure you get this first. Did that shit clear the room? Oh, fuck no, <laughs> no. Like a ah, it, it did a, it did a like, better. It put more people on the floor than Shayla Luna did. Crazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was. Um, I worked in influential clubs. So we, we at that time when you had a big record like that, would you just run it back and run it back? I would play it before the peak time of the night, and then I would play it again later on in the night, the night. when people were raw. So max mess. two two times a night, maybe. Yeah, mm. yeah. I didn't loop them and extend them because it was extended anyway. It was like ten minutes long. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But. Uh, uh, if if there was a good record that I liked that was a short version, oh yeah, I'd just loop it back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. So in the 2000s, there was one record that all DJs, it was one of the first in my experience ever, where all DJs had to play it maybe six to eight times a night. And that was 50 Cent in the club. Oh, in the club, yeah. 2000s. Yeah. And I was wondering if there was a record like that in the 70s or 80s that you just had to, because we never looked. There were big records all the time. But nothing like in the club where, like, literally, you could play it four times in a row, yeah, and no one would leave or complain. Yeah. They wouldn't leave the dance floor. Oh, yeah. They wouldn't complain. That was another. Yeah, never told me about that record. We were at Dre's, and we were, all, we, you know, we we would be at Dre's, and as soon as we'd go, uh, AK would give us uh, a sixteen ounce of. Johnny Walker with a little <laughs> McDonald's lid on it and a straw in it. And a McDonald's like, lid. Yeah. He's like, it just keeps on going, go shorty, it's your birthday. And we, I think we got it on like Audio Galaxy and that cleared the that cleared the floor too. Mm-hmm. The it cleared the floor. Yeah. Yeah. Cleared the floor. A few weeks later, mm-hmm. five, six times. And I, I tell people I broke that record, but in a different way. <laughs> I, was, I, was at, I was at Foundation Room Bam! and I, I just had it. I, I couldn't physically listen to the song anymore, at least for that night. And, I, and some girl comes up, oh, can you play in the club again i said no i can't she's like well, why not and i took it out and i smashed it to pieces over my head nah. i said it has a skip in it or something like that. 
<laughs> then, like when I was living in Atlantic City, like this is like 2012 now. This is like 15, 17, 15 years later or something like that. I was at HQ Beach Club and my buddy T.O.T. from Jersey comes up. He's like, oh, I was hoping I'd see you today. And he opens up in his, his wallet. He's like, I've been meaning to show this to you. And I see like this black shard, like plastic, and I see grooves and I see a little bit of orange. And if you remember the, the, the vinyl, yeah, yeah. it was on the orange, orange yeah. label. I said, oh shit, wait. He's like, he was there that night. He's like, I watched you smash that record over your head. Uh. Basically tell those girls to fuck off. <laughs> He's like, and I kept a souvenir. He's like, oh my so, God. I'm like, wow. That's funny. <laughs> wow. Did you ever have a record like that? In the seventies, eighties. Oh, Caribbean Queen. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know, we, but actually, it was a good record. <laughs> My man said, Ugh. <laughs> "Yo, I." You know, we interviewed you at one of our live events, and we were like, "What is the song that you're tired of, of of playing?" And everyone was like, "Oh, you know, Montel Jordan." Uh, you know, they were like, "Oh, I'm so tired of playing." Uh, you know, like uh, Mobamba or this or that. And then we went to you, and you were like, Caribbean Queen. Caribbean Queen. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't like it? Oh, I liked it, but not like for three years. Wow, so yeah. you had to play yeah. like four times a night or something. Yeah, a couple times a night. You know, It, it was actually a go-to fill your dance floor record. Was that a big song in the clubs, what? Caribbean Queen? Was I it mean, a big yeah, song in the, in the huge, clubs? Huge, huge, huge. <laughs> it was guaranteed to pack your dance floor. And then, wow. you know, it's Guaranteed. the funny thing that's like the last record we would ever play if we were ever doing like a set. Yeah. From that era. There was also a Spanish version of it, too. Yeah, well, they, they had multiple. Yeah. They also they have, have, multiple Afri they have African, African Queen. Queen. Yeah. yeah. Africa, I, African I have, I have Queen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Man, they have multiple versions of it. Wow. That's interesting though. You said though I like it, but I I don't like it for three years. Like so what? Like so to have to play a song for for three I mean, years I mean, because it, it, of its popularity. That's <laughs> that's like nothing compared to now. I mean, we're no. still fucking playing Get Low. Yeah. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know? But I'll tell you, yeah, if you if you're doing old school night disco retro disco seventies eighties night, you play it. I, I feel like you. I feel like you had to play before. like play Staying Alive a couple of times during the night. Was that a a song you play in, in the 70s staying alive and then it's like you know Billie Jean that was like levels or, or blame it on the boogie you know in the mm. 70s and stuff like that you know it was guaranteed if there's a lull in the night okay I gotta figure something out cause let's face it you you know you, our bars we started DJing at 10 till 4 in the morning and uh, it's like if there's gonna be a lull in the in the night so there was always gonna be okay I'll put this fucking Caribbean fucking queen and the dance floor would fall and then you'd be all happy yeah, and re-energize like, like, like you're a hero yeah. Yeah. yeah what was it like when off the wall Michael Jackson came out oh and then you were just playing like every fucking song every cut on the album yeah yeah it was like was it, the, uh, was it a bit unheard of or oh, like, was yeah, there any the, album like that ever that, that you would no that didn't have that many hits on it was amazing crazy right it was crazy and they were all written by uh, Quincy Temperton. Rod, Rod, Rod Temperton. Rod Temperton, yeah. Rod Temperton. And, uh, you know, he wrote all those songs for Michael Jackson and, you know, his first band, Heat Wave, you know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then he went on and just started writing for everybody. I remember I had to buy more um, in the club record, like, because it was getting fucked up because I played it so much. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, I bought like three copies off the. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm sure. Like, how many copies did you have to buy, or how many did you have to run through with Off the Wall? I feel like that whole album. Oh, a couple albums. Oof, that's like because the grooves are small and you're tracking your needle at three grams or something. Yeah, it's yeah. like it's yeah. the worst, right? It's like the worst. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, so, so, 
Wait, you were gonna ask something, right? I want yeah, I wanted to talk about hip hop music. So when hip hop first came out, was you a fan of it? Oh yeah, 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 because it was fun. Stuff like you know King Tim the Third by Fatback Band, mm-hmm. and then the Rappers Delight, which I which I heard on WUFO, the AM station. Freaky Crocker had got to start it. I was listening. I said, I hear Good Times by Sheik, and I hear some guy talking over it. They're singing. I said, What is this? Mm-hmm. I called the radio station. What the fuck is this record? Oh, it's a new Rappers Delight. I'm, oh, okay, you know. And I was like, I said, you know, they're starting to sample a disco record and starting to what we ended up calling rapping over it. Yeah. I said, you know, something new is starting here, you know. But I used to like all the old stuff, the Humpty Dance, you know, the old, all that old you know, cool fun stuff, you know. I had another question following that one. So when hip hop first came out, did you think it was going to last this long? Or you thought it was going to be just a fad? It was like, uh, it's going to be around for a couple of years, then it's going to go away. You know, I I, th- I thought it would be a fad, but then I started listening to it and I said, you know, they're sampling a lot of old records to make these records. Mm-hmm. So maybe that'll give it longevity. You know, and then that's what it did. It sort of sounded like an older record with a cool rapper, drum beat sampled. And it was like, you know, and, and then you had just more and more good stuff coming out. Then you had the Soul Sonic Forest, and you had all that stuff, and you know, and, and it just mushroomed from there. But I never thought it would be where it is today. It's funny. I was talking to a, a few DJs, and they were saying that they they think hip hop is is like kind of nearing the nostalgia phase right now, where it's just kind of it's just kind of it's peaked, and we're playing all the same records, and it's just like it's kind of. It's not really going. Anywhere. It's not going. Yeah, yeah. It's going. It's going to stay where it's at right now. I just think like it, it's just kind of like it's not. It's it hasn't progressed like it did in the 2010s, like in the 2000s, right? And they're waiting for something yeah. new to explode, right? To take it to another level. It's been <laughs> stagnant for quite. But, a while. but it's not there yet. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like entering this nostalgia phase because we're still honestly playing some of the same fucking records for the past crazy, 20 years. Man. Yeah. 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 <laughs> So are you, not you know even, are you not even considering a lot of like the newer what we I guess would be considered hip hop? I mean, I'm not I'm not um, super up on all. Uh, I, I don't, but like I don't know. Um, it's like just, new hip hop artists. It's just, just less and less songs that yeah. are like you know making it through. Yeah. You know, t- to the point where like eighty percent of the night, eighty five percent of the night is throwback. From, yeah. yeah, but then they're also looking at also if you if you're like analyzing streams and uh, and people listening to music. Like over, like I think over sixty, or I don't know the numbers, but it's it's a large majority of people just listening to older music mm-hmm. and not newer music. You think pandemic had a lot to do with that? I would imagine. I think I think I th- maybe people's ears got tuned into a lot of eras of music that they might not normally have gravitated to towards. I, I do know, think it, that people maybe were definitely listening to a lot of more older catalogs during the pandemic, but I also feel like. The like artists, maybe, and like the way people, like the way artists are approaching music or hip hop in general, I think that's really the key thing right now. Interesting. I think. Yeah, because artists are making more money playing video games on Twitch than making music. <laughs> yeah. Like T Pain made more money on the pandemic uh, playing video games than the last ten years of his career. Really? Yeah, that's no. what he has said. What so that's what I'm saying. Like, I don't, I don't think if money was a motive. I think that's gone and they're getting money elsewhere. Wow. Like if an artist has like a, a crazy record and they, you know, they're really not going to make that much money from streams. They're really going to make more money from touring, performing touring. live and yeah, touring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is like the complete, I mean, 
you know, back in the day, if you had a hit record and went platinum, I don't know. There's like all of these weird, like new songs that are going platinum now mm. that I, I would never think would go platinum. I know. Like just recently, I saw NBA YoungBoy have had a hundred um, singles into the Hot 100. Yeah. Since his career started. I don't know any. I, I don't know, know like, one fucking maybe two, two of his songs, but a hundred. That's what That's I'm saying. Crazy. Like, yeah, the, the motive, the shit is being saturated is different. Supposedly, I, I think I saw Mad Skills post that there was over 33 million songs last year that were released and never played once in any streaming platform. Oh, really? Wow. So that <laughs> tells you like how much shit is coming out and nothing's being played. Well, I remember like in 2020 or in 2020 and 2021, I went to New York and I was like, yo, what's the biggest song y'all playing right now? And everyone was like, ABBA. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I remember like ABBA, oh. Gimme, Gimme. Uh, gimme, Gimme, wow. Gimme, yeah. yeah. Or Dancing and, uh, Queen. Dancing Queen, they were like, that's the biggest shit right now. Yeah. And I was like, wow. <laughs> and I thought they were joking. I was like, fuck out of here. Well, look and, then, and then the past few months, everyone's like, yo, fucking YMCA is killing. I'm about to say, oh, God. God. The, new, the, new, the new hot song I heard is It's Rain and Man. Yeah. I'm telling you right nah. now. Yeah. Charlie, like, dude, Charlie, you got to come back, yo. Yeah, yeah, you got to come back. Yeah, man. <laughs> it's time. The captain needs to be back. I'll, I'll dig the helmet out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, dude. Like even uh, I played uh, Justin Bieber, baby, and that shit blew the fucking wall yeah. off the fucking. Like right place. now, all the all the two thousands and like the two thousand tens, early two thousand tens to fifteens. That's all really coming back, Come right? Back. Like the key year, I think I was talking with Moma about this. Five, the key, the key year of like the best hip hop. In, in the past five years, I think it's 2016 or 17. 17. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, 2016. 16, I would say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 16. Mm-hmm. And he's like, whatever was out in 2016 is fucking destroying right like now. Like the Fetty Wild, all that. All, all, of that, this all that mustard production. Yeah, oh. 14, 16. Yeah. 16 is just like, that's the fucking key right there. It's mm-hmm. like kind of the last years when hip hop was like started, really like, dominating. Yeah. Yeah. I always found out like in the 80s and 90s when we do. You know the the world's largest disco in Buffalo. That's done every year. There's eight thousand people there. It's like all young people. I'd be talking to someone. I said, "You know, are you really into this stuff?" He goes, "My mother has all these records. They grew up listening to these records. Mm-hmm. So a lot of kids that are listening to like the older hip hop now, or that's that's really happening. Yeah, their big brothers and sisters probably were playing it. Right. And now they're old enough to like really get into it. You know. Um. And look at Northern Soul, you know, Eddie, you know Northern Soul. People are into shit from the '60s, yeah. You know, and 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 the, on the radio stations in the UK, and it's like, yeah. wow, they're really into this stuff. They weren't even born yet. I mean, it's all the parents and stuff. Because my mother was playing at the Disco in Motown, yeah. So that's all I grew up listening, yeah. to for the most part. That's that's what happened. What, did you like throw like this huge disco event in Buffalo? It was like. In, in 1979, there were some promoters, uh, Bruce Marsh and Glenn Arnett, wanted to do a big event for, uh, I think it was United Way, mm-hmm. and uh, or Make a Wish, I think it was United Way, and uh, he had a meeting with some of us, he goes, you know, disco may be peaking and on the way out, so we want to take do a big event while it's still relevant. So um, they called it the world's largest disco. And uh, me and Marty Angelo, uh, they were at the Billboard Disco Forum trying to get record companies to send them an act or something like that. And they got no response. So me and Marty got on the phone 
And we got, you know, Edna Holt from West End, Cindy Roy from Casablanca. I got Fern Kinney from TK. And, and we got some of the bands. And then the band guy who was booking bands got Edwin Starr, The Tramps, Glory Gaynor, with full bands. No singing over a record. They're alive. Mm-hmm. And, and um, so I helped that get off the ground. And I was one of the... And, we had DJs from all over. Me, John Sigley, and Marty Angelo represented Buffalo. Michael Lewis, who worked at the Trocadero in San Francisco and the studio one in L.A. And um, Bobby Gattadaro, who worked at the studio and a lot of big clubs in New York, who was the highest paid DJ at the time in New York. He made 50 grand a year DJ in New York in like 1977. That's a lot of money. That is a lot of money. So, cars. Okay, I'm sorry to cut you off, but I was going to ask you about that DJ. Why you never hear about him? Ooh, uh, um, Bobby Gattadaro? Yes. Oh, God, he died years ago from AIDS. Also, he never got to, like, the 90s and shit. Oh, no. No, he was gone in the 80s, yeah. Damn. Like a lot of them were. And, uh, you know, Walter Gibbons, you know, who did remixes for Sal Soul, like, you know, uh, Hit and Run by uh, Lolita Holloway and them. They're all gone. Mm-hmm. Patrick Cowley, who was originally from Buffalo. Uh, he moved to San Francisco when he was in high school, I guess. And uh, he came out with... Uh, you know, Megatron Man and all those songs, that 80s Menergy. electronic stuff, yeah. Energy. Yeah. yeah, he's gone too. You know, they, he was another, yeah, he was sick. He was, he was like, a, yeah. he was unsung, yeah. unsung uh, hero. Yeah. He, was, he, was, he was amazing. Outside of Buffalo, what was your favorite city to visit to party in? Fort Lauderdale. Fort Lauderdale? Oh, yeah. That's where a lot. Oh, that was uh, popping at the time, right? Oh, oh yeah. uh, spring break, man. Yeah. Yeah. But in the disco yeah, era, but records I would was playing. That didn't get a great response yet. After spring break, those same records were hitting. Packed the floor because wow. these kids heard them in Florida at the big clubs in Lauderdale that were uh, really happening. And they, so they were listening to the same record in a different environment that made it more exciting. Mm-hmm. So then they came back from Florida and man, I could pop those records on and they'd be going crazy because they heard it, you know, they heard it where it was working. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, yeah, they're. There was a DJ at, at Big Daddy's called Oz. He was a bass player. He he mixed his record, pick up his bass. He's playing the bass to all his records. Damn. Yeah. Fort Lauderdale was like I I never expected. Fort oh no, no, no. Lauder- Fort Lauderdale was like you know you, you hear about Miami. You just hear about retirement. No 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 no. Oh no, no. <laughs> well, back down Lauderdale was hip. Before and it, and it was young. Before, before South Beach. Before South yeah, Beach. Yeah before South Beach. Fort Lauderdale like if you go to Fort Lauderdale like now. Yeah I'm saying like it's it's it, it feels old. So but, like, <laughs> wait wait wait. So you'll see you'll see all of these like older people. Who stayed there from the eighties? They were like, uh, yo, they were like, yo, and I talked to them, and they're like, and if you even look around, you're like, damn, this shit still kind of look like the eighties, like, yeah. And it's and everyone there that's there is older and came because of the eighties. They were like, man, I came here in the eighties and I loved it so much, I moved here. Yeah, yeah, and that's how yeah. popping Fort Lauderdale was. Oh, along Commercial Park Boulevard and everything, and yeah, uh, yeah at. Um uh, and along A1A, all the beach bars, beach bars along the, you know, along the water there, and, and uh, Las Olas, where all the cool bars are. It's, uh, it's uh, it, wow. it, it, but back then you had the Penta, you had Big Daddies, you had all these big clubs in Fort Lauderdale that were, you know, spring break. Did you uh, did you ever want to travel and stuff or like did you ever do it or no? I had an opportunity to DJ in Las Vegas. Yeah. Back in the late seventies, before I had my airline job, I came out here. My friend Mike Moscato. Who used to run the Playboy Club and the Club 747 where I worked at? He came out here in like 1978, and he managed the brewery, which was on 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 Paradise, 
And that was like the place where Anthony Spilatro, all the mob, everybody hung out. It was and called the brewery? The brewery. That was the discotheque here. And um, uh, he goes, you want to come out here and DJ? I don't know. You know, you have to you bring know. all your records and shit. Yeah, I don't want to move. You know, to move. And then I got my airline job in 1978. So I, that was it. Was there carrying cases back then? Mm -hmm. Did they have like carrying cases for the um, for your records? It was milk crates. Not milk crates. Oh shit! But so what you but what you did, my friends from Toronto when they'd come down to visit me from to Buffalo, they would bring me milk crates from the Canadian supermarkets. They. Go in the back of the supermarket, get the Canadian. Were they different? Yeah, they were made for liters, not gallons, which means oh. it was perfectly twelve inch square. Oh wow! Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, that was. I the got a lot. Account. I got a lot of sealed test yeah. milk crates from Canada that are perfectly twelve inch square. Yeah, yeah you put your records in the side. Uh, in the wider ones, you put the twelve inches here, maybe throw the some forty fives on the side, on, yeah. <laughs> or your needles, or your head yeah. Yeah. on the side. So you used to travel. I mean, when you came to Vegas to DJ, you no, yeah. I, I didn't DJ. But I used to come here all the time. Oh, I thought you had come to DJ. No, I was, one time. I was offered the job. Oh, okay, okay, we're back. And then there was another club um, called Dirty Sally's. I could have worked there, and I turned my friend Doug McDuff on to it. And uh, he became good friends with uh, DJ Frankie. He goes, you know Doug McDuff? I said, yeah, I'm the one I got him as a gig in Vegas. I didn't want to move. Wow. But, uh, yeah, that was, uh, there, was like two there was like two discotheques in Las Vegas at the time. You know, it wasn't a, it was like a whistle stop, you know? So yeah. when you so you never traveled like to DJ, but when you went, kind of you know you probably went to Fort Lauderdale. Oh right? yeah, I, I guess DJ in Toronto many times. You did with my friends who DJed up there. Did come you know, on, come on, do a couple hours with us. Did you notice the style was different? You know, were they were they like a little behind? Were some cities ahead? Oh no, they were uh, Florida. Lauderdale had great DJs. Really, they had great mixing DJs. They played a lot of upbeat Euro disco dance music. You yeah. know, and uh, you know, and it was real. Because you had a lot of the Latinos there, they'd be salsa, also dancing, you know, so they could play all the cool music, you know. Mm, that's so interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm really. Uh, I want to talk about. Hold on. I wanted to talk about the '80s a little bit because I feel like I know that was like a dark time and, and everything kind of changed during the '80s. What was it like when you were DJing? I know there was probably a, a lot more electronic music coming in. The dance scene was changing, and then leading up to the '90s. Like, how was it navigating your career from the 70s to 80s and 90s? The, the 80s was pretty easy because the music went back to its R&B roots that I started playing in the 70s. Right. And, uh, you know, and uh, with all those great independent labels, you know, in, in, in the 80s. And then um, um, in the 90s, it started to get cool again when you had a lot of Euro beat house style type of music. Yeah. And... Uh, that, that was just a, another whole new energy. As long as you get people, you know, you had groups like Black Box and all those things. Yeah, yeah. All, all those groups that were, you know, that crossed over and mm -hmm. they were, and that, uh, it, was a whole, it was a whole new energy. And I really liked that era. And so, like, in the in 90s, did you retire at 96? Oh, in 96, I moved out here to Las Vegas with my day job, with my airline job that I had. Wow. Why did you, why did you retire? Well, I, 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 I My my airline job was important, and I had I started I was managing working with you uh, MMA fighters. Yeah, I was going to Japan every three months, booking fighters there. And, you know, like John Lewis and all them. They all uh, I go there every every four months, and um, 
I went to the Ukraine, did the first MMA MMA event there, booking fighters and coordinating the event. And there, there wasn't really, you know, the, there wasn't really an opportunity to be a DJ that much here because there weren't that many clubs here. Mm. And uh, then, I, you know, there's my buddies, and, you know, I met Eddie and DJ Hollywood and ROB and them, you know, but, you know, outside of that, there weren't a whole lot of DJs and clubs, you know, with opportunities, but I, I just wanted to move on. If I wanted to do anything, I'd want to open up a club, you know? Yeah. And I, and I had a backer, and unfortunately, when the um, um, economy all tanked, uh, he was he, he was a big developer of Rite Aid drug stores, and uh, <laughs> when Rite Aid drug stock went bad, he was stuck holding millions of dollars worth of paper. That was it, you know, because we were thinking of opening up a place here at the time. And nobody at the casinos didn't want clubs until, uh, you know, Bobby Baldwin finally got it, yeah, you know, right. at, at the win with, with Andrew. Yeah, I mean, well, they had Club, uh, I think Club Rio predecessor. Oh, Rio, Rio like, was, the, was, the, was the, the place. Yeah. Really? Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> I can't oh, that even was, imagine. You wouldn't oh, think yeah, that yeah. now. I couldn't, no, I couldn't no. imagine. I never liked it, but I, that was the spot. The Rio was killing it. You had yeah. Club Rio and you had Voodoo Lounge. Voodoo Lounge. Up on the roof. Yeah. I loved Voodoo Lounge. That was a, oh, that was a yeah. great room. Yeah, because yeah. Prince was also there too. That was a selling. That was later on. That was later on. Yeah. 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 But see, when I moved out there, and I, and everyone talked about like the Club Rio, and I think Studio Voodoo, Fifty Four at MGM was that, in there. That, yeah, but it was that, like that, it was kind of a rap for for Rio at that time. It was like mid two thousand. Yeah. When you yeah. moved down here, yeah, yeah, yeah I would yeah. say yeah. it's kind of it, it started to kind of dwindle in popularity. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah. So it was popping in the nineties, kind of like a little bit. Fucking yeah, yeah. The yeah, I mean the drink, fucking um, yeah, Club Rio. But the drink was a standalone. The beach was yeah. standalone, and um, yeah, as far as in the, the beach casino, was a popular place. Yeah, as far as the casino, yeah, it was probably yeah. Club Rio, and um, you know, C two K at the Venetian was probably or like late nineties, early two yeah. thousands too. Yeah, yeah. So like when you came to Vegas and you started focusing on MMA and uh, and uh, working at the airlines, I'm I'm kind of curious, was it did you want to step away from DJing because it was a lifestyle choice or it would, you just wanted a change in career? You know, Both. Both? Both, yeah. But it, then uh, you always have the itch. I would go home and do, uh, they'd always have some DJ reunions and stuff like that, yeah. you know. And, and um, um, you know, the world's largest disco, I helped them bring that back 15 years later in, in 2000, and, oh, in 1994. Mm -hmm. And uh it still goes on today. It's a charity event. 8,000 people sell out. It sells out in an hour. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. It's the Woodstock. Bobby Gutterdaro in 1979 called it. He said, this is the Woodstock of disco. Nobody did an event like that. 15,000 people showed up in 1979. Yeah. Canal Plus from France was there doing a newsreel and everything. It was huge. Wow. It was unbelievable. So it was it. It was like kind of a gradual thing. Yeah, yeah. But I still brought my records and shit out with me. I said, "Yeah, you never know. Never say never." <laughs> then I walked into a place called Caramel, and I met the guy that's sitting next to me. Right. And he goes, "When's the last time you DJ?" You know, when I was back in Buffalo. He goes, "Bring some records with you Monday night to the Foundation Room." Wow. And he sort of rejuvenated. Kill it. That was a Kill it. fun. Yeah. Fun Monday night industry night with Eddie. I was a blast. I did that. We like, did that for like a year together. Yeah, 
It yeah. was almost 10 years, right? Like a decade after mm-hmm. you retired. Yeah. 96 to 2006. Yeah. Wow. Because yeah. I did the VH1 special when Disco ruled the World 2005, I think, and then we did the foundation room a year later. Yeah. Right. Like yeah, right around. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that party was great. That, oh, Monday night, it was the best. Yeah. I used to be jealous because I was doing a hip-hop room with Justin Hoffman. And, and, <laughs> a lot of people used I used to be, be like, damn, I want to do yeah. this room. I want to do these guys. <laughs> never mentioned that. And then I remember one night they had Roy... Um, Roy Davis Jr., uh, like legendary house music DJ and producer. Um, King Brit. King King, well, King, King played, King, the, yeah, King, King played, played the main part. Yeah, I was talking yeah. to Roy. And, uh, <laughs> oh no, actually no, Roy played there, but it was King Brit. It was yeah, King yeah, Brit King that Brit. was like, man, I, I want to play in there, there with y'all. I'm like, I'm like <laughs> come on in, man. <laughs> Yo, like, l- looking back on like your life and your career and everything from 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s, you know, I always have this conversation, like in your 20s, you, you want to make as many mistakes as possible. You want to oh, learn yeah. as much, but you also want to like kind of master a skill or master mm-hmm. craft. And then in your 30s, you kind of make money, right? Yeah. And then in your 40s, you're kind of learning to juggle, like kind of almost it's like it's about time management where you're learning to juggle like work, family, friends, and kind of manage it all. Yeah, you start to get older and you start to... Get married, and you have yeah, kids. Yeah. You got a little more responsibility, but you still want to do a club at least one night a week. Yeah, yeah. And we still want to like keep in shape. Like some people go to the gym, some DJs they gotta go and spin for a few hours. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of wondering in 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 your opinion, what do you focus on in your 50s, and then what do you focus on in your 60s? That in your experience that you've learned throughout your life, you, you got to say to yourself, I had a lot of fun, I made a lot of money. If I knew I was gonna live this long, I would have saved more. But then you still got like 20 more years, 15 more years to start saving for your retirement because time goes by fast, man. I'm going to be 70 years old in August. Uh, and, and Congratulations. And, and just, <laughs> Not a lot of people make it through. I'm telling you. <laughs> Jeez. You don't look so I'd be, I'd be a good candidate for like an anatomy. You he know, made the, it to Rick James's <laughs> ranch and he's but, <laughs> still here. <laughs> 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 yeah, but uh, the next thing I know is like, Okay, I, I got to put more money in my 401k now because like, I'm 50 years old. I'm going to collect my Social Security in 15 years. And the last 20 years went by in a blink of an eye. It's like, I got to start getting serious. I got to build up my Social Security. I got to have a job with a paycheck with Social Security taken out of my 401k from work. And, and I got it's like... Uh, you know, but if there's a chance to do an hour vinyl set somewhere, I'd do it. <laughs> but it would, uh, and I could still kick ass. And but uh, you, you end up like like Eddie. Now he's in the real business end, booking DJs, events, and stuff like that. Not mm-hmm. just DJing. He's he's looking at the future, mm-hmm. and you know, and you're, you're doing very well. Thank you. Like, certain, Thanks, Charlie. certain guys, they end up. You know, now it's time to get into the business end of it. Am, am I gonna? Uh, be an engineer in a recording studio or if I uh, start my own record label or do something, I'm not just going to be a DJ. I got to start thinking of the future. I got to start making money. I got 15, 20 years left before I retire. Mm-hmm. And believing that time goes by fast. Yeah. yeah. Fast. I, I was kind of noticing like uh, with, with other, I guess with other, like other business people or other creatives or artists, when they start entering like their late 40s or 50s, they start, uh, and even me, like I'm starting to think about it a little bit more but you know in whatever industry they're in they start wondering how they can affect 
the culture of it yeah in, in a more positive way mm-hmm. you know like uh i don't know like even guys like dr dre and probably like jay-z mm-hmm. you know they're kind of like yo i made all this money i'm a billionaire i'm a millionaire but then they start thinking like how am i affecting the industry how am i affecting the culture the people the community and they start thinking of how they can like control or help you know their peers or the industry in some way mm-hmm. um I don't know. I was just like kind of yeah. spitballing that out, yeah, a little bit. But uh, you know, because that's what I'm starting to like kind of think about as I'm entering. Because like I, I think as I started, you know, towards my late 30s, entering my 40s, I you know I was still thinking like you know I was just like oh I'm competing with these 20 year old DJs. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And after a certain point, you're like I got to take like a different role. As I'm getting older with the, with, with all these DJs, it's definitely yeah. it's it's an important conversation, yeah. Yeah. and this yeah. is an important yeah. interview, and it's a great guest to have to kind of you know we <clears throat> you have a lot of the younger guys coming up. So what's it like, and you're you know you know coming up, you know just getting started now, but you know to look forward and uh, with somebody that's kind of like you know yeah. seen it all, been through it all, still does it, still has the passion, but it's like you know the questions you're asking are important, like you know so you know what was the what were the steps like? It's like, you know, I'm hitting 50, my 401k and this and that. You like, there's going to come a time. Right. If you're not in the studio making records and you're not building a brand in your prime, that's going to transcend, you know, you know, decades or something like that. Mm-hmm. You got, you know, if you don't want to be relying on those DJ gigs that, you know, and you're into your fifties and sixties, you really got to start, you know, paying close attention to where where this is going and and i'm i'm thankful that i was able to like parlay it into yeah. something within the industry yeah uh but, but you, but you with, even went through your you you even went through your ups and downs i mean you at one point eddie you were like miserable? you were driving the uber you know what i'm I, saying I do, I'll, I'll do whatever i was no, selling, no, no, but i was I, selling fucking streaming uh you know cody boxes and shit I like remember, that yeah. uh, that would that kept me going i'll do whatever i mean right. I i'm a hustler no you no know? no but you were Uber. You, you were you were djing you were killing it and then you know you moved to the east coast you came back and then you were like you you know you you had to start over again you started yeah. over yeah you know? i mean i wasn't gonna stay listen i opportunity knocked it was my I, my my time with light group came to an uh an end after 14 or so years and then you know I hit up Hakkasan group they offered me a great opportunity and luckily it was in my home state I said you know what let me let me do that my father had just passed I said yeah I'm going to go do I'm going to do that this is going to be great DJing booking DJs for you know a company that I had a lot of respect for I love Neil Moffat and Alex City, Cordova right, yeah. and those guys Derek in Jersey yeah yeah and yeah so we were in Atlantic City and then when the you know the club was crushing it when the when the casino shut down it's like fuck uh you know my, I spent a lot, I made a lot, like I spent a lot more time in the industry in, in Vegas and I got much deeper connections out there. I said, I'm, I got to go back. But, uh, you know, and we were just, me and Justin Hoffman landed a gig at the Artisan, DJing at the Artisan doing like an after hours thing until like six in the morning, which was fun with Frank Richards also. Oh, that was fun. But yeah, no, it was a lot of fun. And then Alibi opened, that got me back in with Andy Massey and stuff like that. And, um, but I was, yeah, I was driving Uber 
Uber to, to supplement stuff. I didn't know, yeah. I didn't have stability yet. And then I just kind of got like, you know, which I've said many times, I just kind of got a little burnt out on DJ and I wasn't connected with the music and, you know, decided it was time to start creating another path, but I didn't want to leave the industry because I still love it. You kind of hated the new music. No, you still hate the new music. Did I hate it? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, you could say I hated it, but there's no right or wrong. I mean, people like it and that's fine. It, it wasn't it I want to give my perspective because when I started working with Eddie, okay. he was still, he was, when I started working with Eddie from Mac, he was still DJing at Alibi about four to five times a week. And then slowly he started like, Three times, two times, and then I remember during that time he was like, "Yo, can you send me a folder of the new shit? Because I don't, I don't, I don't know what's good." It was it, no, he was. And over it, again, that. people might like it, but I go on a lot of the record pools. I'm like, great, another fucking. Yeah, another fucking Moomba tone remix of yes. fucking Justin Bieber or something. I'm like, I, this is just. I'm like, you you listen to like 200 records, maybe you'll get one that you would like. You wouldn't feel ashamed to play. And I just like it. Just yeah. So I would definitely. Yeah, he'd be like, yo, can you some, yeah. some corner cutting opportunities with my DJ? <laughs> and it's brethren. But you were you were smart. You didn't burn any bridges here. You kept all the important contacts for the most part. Yeah, no, I didn't. I didn't. It's crazy. Yeah, as crazy as shit has gotten. I, I, I've yeah, I've always kept the relationships intact. It's important, you know. And and that does it, not just in this town, but you could see all the interchangeable people between the Vegas market, Miami. You know, New York, it's a very small world and it's a very small industry. So, I, I, I remember, I, was, I think never we were talking to somebody and they were just like, man, like I, I forgot what was the conversation, but they were just like, fucking Eddie's killing it right now with, with Mac and Anderson Pack and DJ Pee Wee's traveling, da 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 da. And um, they're just like, man, like, you know, he's doing really well. And I think there was this thing where he's like, uh, you know, like maybe he got hooked up or something like that. And I was just telling him, like yeah, like Eddie was like a few years ago was driving a fucking Uber. Like yeah. he's been through. Like we all have our ups and downs oh, yeah. of our career. Absolutely. But it's just like it's really how you stay focused and you grind. And it's honestly like you said, like relationships, yo. Like just really maintaining the relationships, being a solid, like trustworthy, you know, consistent dude. Mm -hmm. And like you, you stayed in the game, you know, like you've been through the ups and downs of it, and then you fucking, you know, you basically remade your bones and you know what I'm saying and, and you're doing what you're doing now you know like, thank you man yeah no no, no but like everyone just thinks like it just happens yeah. or it's no. a hookup yeah exactly but yo like that's a tough time like yeah. I you know like I, I've been through it you've been through it never been through it like yeah. we've all had like if you've been in any type of industry for like 20-15 years you're gonna go through it yeah, yeah. You know? and I it's mean, really how you bounce back um, you know and, and it's how you like kind of like carry yourself when you hit that low yeah. and you don't like attack motherfuckers and shit on everybody, bitter, yeah. you know, you kind of just like, yo, I'm going to stay in my lane and build my shit back up brick yeah. by brick again, you know? Yeah. You find a way, you know yeah. I mean? And I, and you know, you know, we're all very close here, everybody in this room, you know, and you know, we're all, you know, and, and you know, we've seen a lot of um, accessibility in our industry over the last years, technology, whether it's technology or just, it, it's not a difficult thing to, you know, um, become a DJ anymore. It's just not. And that's fine. That's fine. Technology is part of the game. I stopped getting bitter and hating on it and shit like that. Go nuts. But I kind of know where we all come from and our emotional um, 
um, attachment, attachment to, to, to the, yeah. this craft and this, this industry. And, and it comes, you know, so it, it is a lot of ups and downs. You don't like to see something that you, you're very guarded over and stuff like that become yeah. like fucking the floodgates open up and everybody's got their little fucking controller. And but, it, but it's funny. It's like as much change as there is, it always comes back to the essence, the, the actual, you know, like, like you just said, yeah, the essence of it all—the roots, where you know? the foundation is at. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's and it's it's great because then sometimes you see these like some new blood, or like the new gen, really understanding, like they're really kind of keeping the essence of what what DJing mm-hmm. is or what music is, yeah, and they're continuing to like push it forward. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. That's really the great thing. One of one of the things I always remember is like I'll be DJing and Charlie would text me and he'd be like, "Where are you at this weekend?" And he would come out. And he would just he would, he would just man. hang out yeah. and fucking listen to me. And I always just remember, like, yo, that's I felt really honored that you would just come out to live. And I would get nervous as fuck because <laughs> yeah. I'd be like, you know, like I'm like, all right, try not to push too many buttons. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, don't write, don't write the fucking. I'm like, mix. I'm like, yo, like, you gotta mix a little bit more. You know, don't be yeah. pushing the buttons. Like, mix a little more, scratch a little bit more, show this motherfucker. Like, you know, like I'm not, you know. <laughs> Shit, can I mix a little Holloway into this future? And don't cut that song in half. It's a great fucking song. Don't ruin it. Play a verse. Play a verse. You mix on the break. You're mixing on the break. You're mixing on the fucking break. <laughs> but, no. but but I enjoyed going out to see Eddie and you and, and ROB in Hollywood over at the Palms and stuff. So, so I could still touch it. So I could still feel the industry. Yeah. I mean, just so I could still be in touch. Yeah. Finger on the pulse. Absolutely. Shit. That was, uh, I was really honored and uh, everything. Like, I'm like, I'm honored for you coming on the show. Yeah, you're a great DJ. Yeah. I'm honored to be here. No, yeah. yeah. We gotta, we gotta get you back on the wheels one of these yeah. days. Yeah, I think we'll make that happen. That's yeah. perfect. That's, that's, an, that's an easy thing to make happen, it. man. For sure. Just, just turn the tables this way, not battle style. Uh, <laughs> reach over, reach over the pitch control and have yeah. your, have your, have your, uh, Watch him. <laughs> like, uh, well, we had it. Well, no, John Luongo played when we went over to Matteo's place yeah. and oh, yeah. we brought John Luongo. Well, Luongo, the yeah. there's a legend. God yeah. damn. Yeah, Matty was like, I can't believe these guys are in my house mixing records right now. And, and you know, I bought some, you know, John Luongo. So, John Luongo, legendary producer and, and DJ and stuff from Boston. Yeah, he DJed with Matty's father in Boston. Yeah. Then he ended up remixing all the Jackson ja- stuff yeah, for the, Columbia Records. Shake your body down, down to the ground. Um, he did Jackie Moore this time, baby. That extended baby. remix yeah. with that amazing oh, wow. arra- arrangement. He did Melba Moore. You stepped into my life. Twelve and, and, they, gave, and they gave him a Greg King label. Band. I, I, I uh, Jeopardy. Jeopardy. He did Jeopardy. Um, I think some Joan Jett stuff. But yeah. like amazing and uh, he's like ah you know I want to get back into it and so we went over to Matteo's house and we had like we have these pictures of like generations of DJs like touching a Yuri <laughs> <laughs> we, we talked about the 50s now that we now we are entering their 70s if you look back on your 60s what do you think you know you learned the most or what what do you think your 60s was about or what would I have done different um, my 60s were I, I was lucky to make it that far i was lucky to have a good career i was lucky to uh save some money although i could have saved more but i'm very comfortable and um i look back you know from that 70s hanging out with djs i was a groupie until in my 60s i'm 
coming to see you guys as a groupie. No, no. You know, and it's like I'm like a DJ groupie. I, you know, it's like because <laughs> I learned a long time ago. You know, the DJ you get into all the clubs. You know, and Eddie always hooked me up. You know, I was like, Eddie, who do I see at the door? And uh, but yeah, it's um. Uh, I made a lot of good relationships here in the nightlife business. So it seems yeah. like a lot of like gratitude, right? Yeah. And, you know, I never got married, almost. Uh, no wife, no ex, no kids. I couldn't find a reason to give somebody half. So I was really... <laughs> <laughs> I was, so I, uh, I was just uh, a free spirit. You know, I, I, you know, I worked at the airport in the day or I was uh, working with the boxing commission and stuff on the weekends and stuff. And it's like, but when the event's over... I'm going to a club, and I know which club I can get in because I know the DJ, and I know who I'm going to see. So I was, I was still like a kid in the candy store, being able to, some friends coming to town, coming, oh, man, those clubs, like, I'll get you in a club, come with me. You know, we go to On the Record, boom, I bring a couple friends in, it's like, wow, you know everybody. I said, no, I know the DJ. You know, it's like, yeah, they thought I knew the owner of the club. No, I knew DJ Eddie. And, uh, but, uh, and because there's so many great resident DJs here. They should be making more money. But that's what the market is now. Like you said, a lot of young mm. kids want a DJ. You know, yeah. DJ for 200 bucks a night, not 800 bucks a night. But, you know, I, I don't, I look back and I'm happy with everything I did. And, uh, you know, if once you start hitting into your 50s, make sure you have a plan that wherever you're living, make sure it's paid for. You mm -hmm. know, I paid off my condo. You want to retire with no mortgage payment. Yeah. Mm. Unless you got a pension. You know, and stuff like that. Was I was lucky to have a couple little pensions, but you know, you, you, time flies fast. Start setting your set up yourself up to when the party's over, that you can just kick back and do what I did: be a groupie and go see new DJs that you know, or hey, go to a club and just still touch the music industry. But you want you want to be you don't want to have shit. I got a fifteen hundred dollar mortgage payment this week. I got a four hundred dollar car payment this week. You, you can't have that. Mm -hmm. And I learned that a long time ago. So I was a car junkie. And I would buy and suck, you know, that, that I didn't need, but I wanted, you know. Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, and, and all they do is lose money. You know, so. Uh, but I did all that shit while I was young enough to enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but, but then I, I got into my 50s and it was like, I'm going to be hitting 60s. And it's like, okay, I got to get my finances in straight. And that's really the most important thing. Mm -hmm. That's going to make you real happy 15 years later. Wow. I, I heard also like a lot of a lot of motherfuckers told me that the best sex you have in your life is in your fifties. Oh yeah, is it true? Absolutely, really, absolutely. Why is that? Um, he has it. He can have a threesome every night. Because yeah, <laughs> because you know it's funny. I go out with chicks younger than me, yeah. but <laughs> only because only because I can take him to a club. You know, and it's like I'm in tune with pop well, how, culture. How young? Shit like how, how young are we talking here, Charlie? What's your, what's your age yeah. limit? Yeah, yeah. Like, do you like? Nah. Oh, I, I like chicks in their forties, early fifties, mid fifties. I like it. With like, yeah. you know, they got nice big divorce settlements. They got their own car. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, you they don't have, take care of you. Charlie. You ain't gotta buy them nothing. Yeah, they just want uh, but, good time but, and dick. But, but I go out with chicks, hang out. They're like, they're like my gal pals that are in their thirties. But, uh, you know, they'll meet me at a club or something. You know, by my friend, you know, did she met, met us at the club with her friends. Oh, yeah, yeah, my yeah friend. of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, she's cool. Yeah. And uh, But I met a lot of these girls through the, the mixed martial arts and the fighting events because a lot of them are kickboxers and fighters and yeah, stuff. Yeah. So it's like I was able to, 
relate to that. You know, a guy my age is going to go home and listen to a Sinatra record with a scratch in it. You know, and I'm, I'm uh, I go to a club and feel comfortable because I'm attuned to the music, you know, and, and, and the vibe and stuff. And, you know, I'm not there to pick up chicks. I'm there to hang out with the, I'm just here to enjoy the lights and the technology. Like when I go see Maddie over at the, over at the win, X, uh, XS. Man, I've been in a booth with him and Neil, and I'm looking at the technology. I'm like, God damn, this board costs more than the whole club I used to work in. <laughs> and, and the technology, I would say, that's what I'm into. I'm like, I just like to see how it's involved. You know, just like I'm a car guy too. I like classic cars, but then I like to see how they have evolved. You know, mm-hmm. it's like I, I, I like to explore. You know, I, I don't like living in the past at all. Yeah, yeah. And I just like 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 new shit, and I will till I croak. Wait, wait, wait. No. Tell us about the sex in your 50s. Yeah. 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 <laughs> oh, I want, well, let me tell you. Well, no, no. You was, you was getting into it, and then you started talking about light technology. Yeah. And I was like, wait, no, wait, no, wait. no, go back. How, is, oh, this, is this leading to, like, leading to like a flashlight? Well, 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 you know, well, the flashlight. <laughs> I'm like, yo, I'm like, where's this going with the light? Yeah. <laughs> or we're oh, no, I, I started talking about decades. Decades and so, oh, no, 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 my bad. And ages and stuff. It's cool. Oh, it's good. Yeah. Come on, you can still get a boner in your 50s and 60s. Yeah, no, no. I know. <laughs> as long as you're healthy. <laughs> well, Charlie's yeah. been as an aspiring geezer porn star for since I've known him, right? Oh, geezer porn. Oh, I met the king of geezer porn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I, 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 <laughs> Somewhere he's on a podcast saying that he met Captain <laughs> But But yeah, but it's, it's like, it is, especially if you're with a girl that's active yeah maybe a little freaky that you can do shit that you wouldn't do with your girlfriend 20 years ago now you can pull their hair spank them grab their arm I'm, I'm, I'm picturing him with the hat on the, the captain oh the captain this oh what a great idea oh shit here we go uh, I'll come out of the bedroom naked with the helmet on I'll tell her marshmallow ain't shit baby <laughs> Uh, oh, man, man. <laughs> when he's gonna start ringing the bell. <laughs> I get the bell. Yeah. <laughs> I oh give him the God. look. <laughs> oh my God, Charlie! This is the best part of the interview. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Charlie, thank you so much for coming through, man. Eddie, thank you for coming thank through. Thank you for having me. I, I, sure. I love these guys. I love yeah, you um, guys. Man, you yeah. Yeah. Charlie Anzalone, thank you so much. Thanks for tuning into the Road Podcast. Don't forget, every Wednesday, we have new episodes on all major streaming platforms. And every Thursday, the video versions go up on our YouTube page. Please subscribe to our channel, youtube.com slash roadpodcast. And to find exclusive clips of the pod, please visit youtube.com slash DJ City. And we'll see you next Wednesday.